Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? I'm feeling great. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Yeah. I it's, it's been a long week. I couldn't tell you what day it is, but uh, it's just a lot of busy. This is the calm before the storm for me. I have a lot of things in a short span coming up. So Right. I'm just happy to be here with my best gal. Ditto. Ditto. Yeah. I feel that. I feel that. Um, well, listen, we're going to jump right into something uh, that I feel very passionately like we need to address on the show. Now, for sure. those who've been listening for a long time, you already may know a little bit about this. But for those of you who are new to us, first of all, welcome. Second of all, uh, we have something in our relationship, Christy and I, which is, have you seen this? Which is us texting each other. <laughs> Usually pop culture news, but some sort of link, some sort of video, yes. and it's usually accompanied with, hey, have you seen this? Or, uh, you know, we may not even say that, but that's the tone that we always use uh, with each other. Yes. And Christy sent me one today that I had actually just seen maybe yesterday. And I said to her, you know what? We got to talk about this on the show. Now, mm-hmm. also, if you're an OG listener, you know that Christy has an alter ego and her name is Blanche based on the char- the Golden Girls character. Blanche, who yes. was a little bit boy crazy, a little bit of a man, man eater. <laughs> Thank you for a little bit. Right. Exactly. Thank you. And, uh, you know, I have my moments. But what we yeah. learned in the news this week is that there is a famous gentleman who maybe has a little bit of a Blanche in him as well. Uh, yeah. Now, for those who don't know, I'm talking, of course, about Javier Bardem, who yeah. publicly spoke about his childhood crush. And who is mm-hmm. his childhood crush? E.T. 
E.T. Um, yep. Yeah. The, the lovable there's alien. There's someone for everyone. There's someone for everyone. And I've thought yep. about this a lot. And there's a few things that I want to touch on about this because I have to yes. say, first of all, Javier, you've delighted me <laughs> with this revelation. Yeah. I want to say off the off the get, I believe that yeah. E.T. is a sentient creature who does not speak English, although he or she or they do kind of learn some by the end of the film. But this is a sentient being who has agency. We're not talking about an animal. I'm just getting a little sensitive because I made a video about having a light, slight crush on Chewbacca. And then people were talking about it being bestiality. And I take offense to that because Chewbacca He's more of a man than he is a beast. He's more of a man than an animal, in my opinion. <laughs> and I think the same, although I don't want to gender E.T. because I don't know that we were sure of it. I don't know. <laughs> it's just some weeks you make picking promos so easy. <laughs> he was more man than beast. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Yep. But you know what I mean? Like maybe mm. they don't speak our language, but they can they they can make a choice. It's not like again we're talking about an animal that does that that there is no they can't consent. Sure. I think Chewbacca, I think ET, I think they are ca- capable of consent. Sure. So I want to preface sure. this with that because I don't want to com- I don't want people to think I'm being creepy. That's this is how I'm approaching it. Sure. Think about this for a second. At face yeah. value, you're like Whoa, heavy air, like what a weird choice or atypical choice or whatever. But then I started to break it down a little. I pulled up a photo of E.T. Here's the couple, here's some thoughts I had just jotted down. Yeah. Big eyes, giant eyes. Uh Uh-huh. Great Uh cheekbones. Bone structure, (laughs) impeccable. Sure. Very slender neck. Very kind of like statuesque slender neck. Those delicate piano player fingers, very long, very delicate. Plus, there's that one that lights up, and I don't think I need to tell you. Might be nice going up the chute. <laughs> Turn you into a jack-o'-lantern. <laughs> light em up, 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 light em up, up, up. I'm a fire! Yeah. Also, when E.T. puts on that blonde wig, their eyes pop. They pop. (laughs) All I'm saying is, and also, final thought. Yeah. A little bit of junk in that trunk. That booty don't lie. (laughs) Okay, so what I'm saying is, Uh Javier Bardem, first of all, whimsical choice, sir. Whimsical, that says so much to me. That made me fall in love with him. That I was like, that was your childhood crush? That is so wild and out of the box. And the fact that he said it without shame, the fact that he was like, nope, it was E.T., that makes me feel a real kinship uh, and fondness for Mr. Bardem. And then also, I got to say this, once I broke it down, I get it. (laughs) Not my type of sentient alien being. Sure. I go for a taller, typically. Taller gentleman. Taller, <laughs> taller man who's very manly. Uh, more man than beast. Um, yes. You know, so again, I'm going to say E.T. maybe not for me, but for, for sure. you, Javier, I tip my hat. Okay, first of all, I did not see this going uh, pro crush on E.T. I did not. 
Uh, Neither did but, I, to be honest. I It's just when I started really thinking about it and breaking it down, I was like, I get it. What I wouldn't give, I want somebody, one of those TikTok kids, to make that TikTok trend of, like, my childhood crush versus who I married. But I want, I want the, like, Javi, I want Javier, like, a video of Javier in the middle being just like, you know, like, they're, they're, they're always like, I don't know. This is who I got, like. What is yeah vastly different? Well, Penelope Cruz, arguably one of the most yes. beautiful women on the planet. Um, yeah, yeah. I I feel it. Well, on this planet, <laughs> <laughs> you do have me there. You've got me there. Now I can't help but wonder, like, have we verified what question he thinks he was answering? <laughs> Like, do, did what did he miss here? Did he like, like, did someone say who was your first crush or your favorite film as a child? And somehow he responded, "E.T." And like, he just like I don't know. Did it somehow get mixed up? I just find it wild that that was his choice, unless he's doing it to spare his wife because he doesn't want to be like. I had a crush on this absolute vixen of a <laughs> of a woman and I don't want to tell my wife and have any jealousy so I'll say the most innocent thing I can think and say ET. Uh I'm trying to see here I've done a quick google. I saw the film 3 times in a row declaring his childhood crush was ET. But it doesn't it doesn't say what the quote was specifically on uh, how he said, I had, a, I have a crush on E.T. I, well, if it comes out that they took his words and ran with it for pure internet clicks or something, I'll be sad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, hold on. Here we go. In a feature by Vogue, Spotlighting various A-listers in awards contention at the moment, Bardem was asked about his childhood movie crush. His response is a Steven Spielberg classic that's definitely a bit left field. E.T., he said. I remember the day I saw the film three times in a row. I remember when I met Steven Spielberg. He's such a wonderful man. What an artist. <laughs> but even that doesn't clarify crush. Yeah. Are they just assuming it was a crush because he saw the movie three times in a row? I have to find the original Vogue interview. Is it on? Is it on camera? Oh, has it been filmed? Can we see I his answer so. in real time? I would like to. Yeah, we're gonna. I'm gonna have to dig into this deeper because yeah, we need an answer here. Was he? Ta was it taken out of context? Did he mishear? If they did this for clickbait, I'll be upset. <laughs> Especially because it got us talking about it. Yeah. It does feel like maybe he thought they meant like, what was your favorite childhood movie? Yes. It just feels wild that, like, Crush just feels, <laughs> I mean, despite your very valid reasons, that you've come up with. Yeah. Uh, in the in the pro column, I just feel like uh, the like for example, 
Those delicate fingers were a pro to you. They are a con to me because they freak me out. Yeah. I mean, they're not a pro to me. I'm just saying I'm trying sure. to see, to someone. You're, see, you're seeing how it could be a pro. To I'm someone. seeing the beauty through his eyes. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like that. And I feel like, I like that. I feel like a straight man might like a delicate hand. I like the sweeping gestures you keep making with your hands. Yeah. To to show me what you mean by delicate hands. Yeah. I like um, that. Yeah, it's it's I can't see a video, but I can see that yes, that was the quote. The quote was what is your celebrity your childhood celebrity crush and his answer was ET. And then what I read before. I j- this also happened just, <laughs> early February, so it's miraculous to me that it's really just kind of getting traction now in April. And yeah. if I, God, if it turns out, if it turns out that this was a misquote and then I'm going to find out that my newfound respect for Javier Bardem was based in nothing, you're going to find me at the bottom of a bottle. I <laughs> I mean, uh, we'll still respect him. Of course. It's just. I guess I just felt, I was, I was delighted. We saw you from a new light. I was delighted by the whimsy of the choice. To me, I was just like, if that's true and you're just like freely admitting that, what a man. (laughs) Almost as much of a man as Chewbacca. More man than beast. (laughs) (laughs) To be clear, I also want to make it clear, I actually don't really have a crush on Chewbacca. I just made okay, like sure. some, some TikToks that were like a joke. Um, of course. You know, but I think that he's got a sex appeal. And I'm not ashamed mm-hmm. of that. Sure. Hey, I've told you many times that I think uh, I feel bad for Belle in Beauty and the Beast when the Beast turns into a man. We all did. Because she got the she got the shaft when it came to Disney princes. Yes. And I want to re- I want to remind you for a long time I maintained that I had I was interested in the beast sexually. <laughs> yeah. But then I started thinking about it more and more like what would the anatomy really be like and then I kind of creeped myself out because I was like also you're thinking sure. about this too hard. This is like when we got into like sure. what muppet would you date? You know what I mean? Like it's <laughs> it's not right. It's not necessary. And I'm glad that no one has reported mm. us to the authorities. I you know, we're lighthearted gals. We are. We are who we are. And look, as someone who has repeatedly on this show said that she is attracted to Buzz Lightyear, who I might remind you is an action <laughs> figure toy. Um, I <laughs> recently went and saw the Mario movie. Sure. And if you think I didn't come out of that with a crush on Bowser, you're dead wrong. Well, I mean, that's Jack Black. He came alive. He came alive. It was... I just, I couldn't be happier with what he did. Yeah. I I loved every second of him being on screen. I love that for you. Yeah. I mean, I I have some thoughts about the rest of it, but uh, as far as Bowser is concerned, knocked it out of the park. I love it. I mean, I also did say on the show fairly recently that I think the Hamburglar fucks. So there's also that. Yeah. And you know what? Little eyes wide shut mask going on. Come on. He might. He might. 
He might. We don't know. Do you know how many times I've watched Eyes Wide Shut? More than I should admit to. Because every time at the end of it, I go, I don't feel anything. I don't feel anything. It doesn't evoke a feeling in me. And that makes me think it's great for some reason. That I'm like, it's the only movie that I go back to a million times that by the end of it, I'm like, I don't feel anything. And then I'm like, is that what he was going for? I saw it once and said, that's plenty. Well. Come with me. <laughs> I mean, look. I love uh, Stanley Kubrick, though. Point. I'm a big Kubrick fan. So I think that's why I keep going back to it, because it's... Sure. Yeah. Oh, I... My feelings on Tom Cruise, I I will avoid it at all costs if I can. Yeah. I get that. But that's just... Uh, uh, that's just more personal opinion. Sure. Uh, than anything. Sure. You know? What you drinking yeah. over there? Uh, I'm doing, uh, I know they're going to get sick of hearing this, uh, but I feel like they'll take it away from me soon, so I got to get it in now. I'm doing a Mike's Hard Lime. That's nice. It is. It is. I've got a glass of the Matua going. Oh, that's nice. Yep. And some water also, obviously. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I wish I had a Mike's Hard Lime. Again, I was in Canada it's, recently, and I, yeah. I did indulge in them, and I was like, these are oh. better than I remember. They're so good. It's – I don't even understand the reasoning of why they took it away to begin with. I remember being heartbroken, um, very excited that they've brought it back, um, and uh, yeah. I mean, I will say in the, in the beverage realm, <laughs> I'm going to give just a slight update. I was at a different grocery store. Okay. And I saw a different brand <laughs> of peach juice. And did you buy it? Oh, of course I did. I grabbed that thing and threw it in the bag so fast. Um, <laughs> because I, I had to know. But of course, I had to wait several hours because you can't dry it, try it warm. No. I, I got it. I like mine ice cold. So I had to wait overnight, give it lots of time. Um, I also had bought it uh, late at night. So I'm like, okay, I'll try it in the morning. I got up, I practically jumped out of that bed. I got my frosty mug ready. I shook it up a little. I'm like, here we go. I'm ready. It's it's cheaper than the other one because I didn't buy the other one because it was $6, which is an outrageous price and I refused to pay it. But I was like, here we go. Here we go. I'm going to try it. Who knows? You never know. Yeah. First sip, wildly sweet. Ooh. Compared to the other, wildly sweet. Second sip, less less good. Third sip, that will be my final sip. Wow. I did not like it at all. Every sip got worse. Uh, if I had to describe it, it would be like someone took a can of peaches and blended it and then put it as this juice. Too like thick. It was just, it, and it was so, so, so sweet. And so I said to my husband, like, I'm going to leave the rest of it in the fridge but just know I'm not touching it again. So he tried mine because I had so much left. His answer, huh, that's actually pretty good. Well, that was his and first I said, sip. Oh. I said, oh, we are not at two, two styles of peach juice home. It's, it's <laughs> the one, I'm not going to go to multiple stores to buy peach juice. Like, stop it right now. But I think that's I, absolutely what you're going to do, yeah. and I respect it. <laughs> And I, 
I know that it's the joke of before. I didn't like it that much, and then I kind of kept buying it till I liked it. But that one, I made it through that whole first jug going, ah. I just was kind of wavering and on the fence. This was an immediate no. Yeah, that's different. So uh, really disappointing because I was really, really hoping. I'm really glad I didn't turn around and buy two that day. Yeah. Because that was a chaos shop where it was like eight o'clock at night and we wanted just random junk food and candy. So we went to a grocery store we don't normally go to and just filled a reusable bag with just anything off the shelves we wanted, which included various chips, uh, candy, chocolate, pop, of course, the peach juice, and I may or may not have added a unicorn craft dinner. What the hell is that? Uh, it's craft dinner in like there's a unicorn shape and then there's a little star shape and a little cloud rainbowy shape. It's good. I like it. It's a different style of noodle, but the same cheese sauce. And for those who don't know, that's Kraft macaroni and cheese. We call it Kraft yes. Dinner in Canada. We do. We really do. Well, listen, that sounds like a dream. Yeah. And on that note, yeah. let's get into the episode because I got to tell you guys, uh, you people, Christy has uh, informed me this is going to be a big one. And it's no surprise to yeah. me because we're, of course, talking about the Heaven's Gate cult. There is a lot to get through. I know a lot yep. about this case, but I know that there will be things that Christy will inform me about that I did not know before. So I say we just jump right into it. On March 26, 1997, police discovered the bodies of 39 people in a mansion in San Diego, California. Each victim had taken their own life as part of a graduation ceremony in a cult named Heaven's Gate. 26 years later, Heaven's Gate is still one of the most notorious cults in America, and the deaths remain the largest mass suicide on U.S. soil. So, where did Heaven Gate, Heaven's Gate come from, and how did they manage to gain such a loyal following? What made the victims willingly take their own lives, and what happened to the cult members who remained behind? Christy Oxborough investigates. I would like to say, straight off the bat, straight off the bat, I don't believe that was, it doesn't matter. Um, this broke me mentally, so I'm not sure how these notes came out, so good luck to us all. I love it. We're in it now. Yeah. Uh, so a disclaimer, which will come as no surprise to anybody who knows anything about uh, Heaven's Gate, of course, portions of this episode will focus heavily on the subject of suicide. So trigger warning for those who need it. Marshall Herf Applewhite, known as Herf. I will continue to call him Herf until I switch his name to something else, because that's the madness that is this episode. So Herf was born May 17th, 1931 in Spur, Texas. His father, Marshall Sr., was a Presbyterian minister who married a woman named Louise in August 1924. I could not confirm how many children they officially had, but I know the couple had a daughter, Anna Louise, in June 1927, a son, John, in October 1942, and a daughter, Carolyn, uh, who died the day she was born in July 1925. The family moved every few years around southern Texas, and in 1948, Herf graduated from Corpus Christi High School. Fun fact, it is the oldest high school in Corpus Christi, 
and in 1950, the school became known as Roy Miller High School in honor of a former mayor. Notable graduates of Corpus Christi High School include Selena's father, Abraham Quintanilla Jr., actress Eva Longoria, Eva Longoria, there we go, uh, game show host and Betty White's soulmate, Alan Ludden, oh. and actor Dabney Coleman. Oh. I once had a dream that I saw Dabney Coleman riding a bike. I shouted, oh my God, it's Dabney <laughs> Coleman. And then I woke up. For those of a certain generation who are asking, who is Dabney <laughs> Coleman? He is best known for his work in movies like Tootsie, War Games, 9 to 5, The Muppets Take Manhattan, and You've Got Mail, where he played Nelson Fox, F-O-X. If you don't get that reference, that's okay. If you do, you're welcome. It's a little You've Got Mail. It's fine. Uh, so after high school, Herf enrolled in Austin College as a philosophy major with the plans to follow in his father's footsteps and become a minister. After his graduation in college in 1952, Herf enrolled in a three-year course at the Union Theological Seminary in Virginia. However, while there, Herf discovered that his passion for music outweighed his dreams of becoming a minister, so he dropped out and moved to North Carolina, where he became the music director at the First Presbyterian Church. Also in 1952, Herf married Anne Frances Pierce, Two years later, Herf got drafted in the army, so the couple moved to Salzburg, Austria, where they stayed until Herf was honorably discharged in 1956. Herf and Anne had two children, although I could only find information about their son, Mark, who was born around 1957. Around this time, Herf was kind of all over the place when it came to jobs. He was a soloist at a temple in Texas, an occupational therapist at a tuberculosis sanitarium in Colorado, a singer and conductor in New York, and a professor at the University of Alabama. In 1964, Herf was fired after rumors circulated that he was having affairs with men. Herf and Anne divorced in 1968. People who knew Herf around this time described him as popular, likable, smart, a strong leader with a magnetic personality. Herf sang with the Houston Grand Opera and became the head of the music department at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas. He also taught literature, English literature during summer school at the university. However, he was fired in 1970 for, quote, health problems of an emotional nature. Interesting. And for those who are wondering, what the heck does that mean? Basically, the university was very Catholic, and Herf was caught having an affair with a male grad student, so he was quietly let go. Right. The guilt over his affairs and his struggles with his own sexuality led Herf to having a psychotic break. In March 1972, he checked himself into a psychiatric hospital, saying he was hearing voices, having apocalyptic visions, and suffering from depression. Herf later said he hoped the visit would cure him of his sexual desires. However, Herf tried to, to be private about it. He simply told his family he had a heart problem that he was getting fixed. One of Herf's lovers later said that Herf confided in him that he longed for a meaningful platonic relationship where he could develop his full potential without sexual entanglements. At the hospital, Herf met that very companion, 
a nurse named Bonnie Nettles. Now, that is the widely accepted way of how Herf and Bonnie met. However, the story changes depending on the source. According to Bonnie's daughter, Terry, Herf taught drama classes to children at the Houston Music Theater Center. One of the children got hurt. Herf took them to the hospital, and that's how he met Bonnie. According to Bonnie's son, Joe, Bonnie met Herf because Joe was one of the students in those drama classes. And according to Herf himself, he said he met Bonnie when he went to the hospital to visit a friend. But regardless as to how they met, we're going to get into a bit of background on Bonnie. Bonnie Lou Trudale Trusdale, uh, was born August 29th, 1927 in Houston, Texas. She was raised in a Baptist family with three siblings, including a brother, Billy, born in 19, February 1921, a sister, Evelyn, born in December 1922, and a sister, Betty, born in May 1925. Sadly, Betty died at just five years old, but the newspaper article about her death was odd at best. The headline, because there was an article about her death, the headline read, and I quote, Golden-haired doll loses its child mother. So they wrote the, wrote it from the perspective of the doll? I... <laughs> It's just, it was an unsettling way to put it. It's really heady. It makes you kind of have to really pause. That's awful. Yeah. Uh, And the whole bit is, it wasn't, the doll wasn't even the child's gift. It it was a gift that was going to be for Christmas, which was five days after the child's death. So the whole article was about a doll that the child didn't even know existed. Oh my God. Which is such a weird thing but then there was also a moment in it where the mother was like well i've already bought the doll and like what am i gonna do now and it's like oh i don't know but she was going through it so yeah her past but according to the article betty was playing in the yard with her siblings when she was suddenly quote stricken it was also said that betty seemed to be in perfect health when she suddenly started to complain she was unwell and Betty died before a doctor could arrive. An inquest was done, and the decision was that Betty had died from natural causes. Which is fascinating, because what natural cause would take the life of a five-year-old? Yeah. So I have so many questions about that, but I'll never get answers. Yeah. So Bonnie's father, William, died in 1931 at the age of 53. I do not know his official cause of death. Her mother, Elizabeth, remarried a man named James O'Dell a few years later, but there is no record of the marriage anywhere, so it's possible it was not a legit official marriage. In 1948, Bonnie graduated from Herman Hospital of Professional Nursing. The following year, she married Joseph Nettles, a World War II Navy veteran. The couple had four children— Although the names and birth date info for two of them is unknown, likely due to the notoriety of their mother. We'll get into that later. 
Uh, But what I do know is their first child was a daughter named Terry, born around 1953, followed by a son, Joe, born around 1960. So Bonnie worked as a registered nurse and in her spare time developed an interest in astrology, biblical prophecy, UFOs, and the occult. In February 1966, Bonnie joined the Houston Lodge of the Theosophical Society and attended a group which centered on channeling non-corporeal entities. She consulted with mediums and fortune tellers and started performing weekly seances where Bonnie claimed to be in constant contact with a dead monk named Brother Francis. Bonnie's extracurricular interests caused some friction in her marriage, and she and Joseph divorced in late 1972. When Bonnie met Herf, they shared an immediate connection, which they believed stemmed from knowing each other in a past life. Bonnie read Herf's astrological charts and claimed it proved that they were destined to be spiritual partners. Bonnie alleged, allegedly told Herf that the voices he was hearing were the spirits telling him he could be a divine teacher and that they were chosen to fulfill biblical prophecies. And after months of discussing their ideas about religion and heaven, Bonnie and Herf decided it was time to spread their gospel. So on January 1st, 1973, they left their children behind and headed out on a cross-country journey. Bonnie's daughter, Terry, said, quote, They just said that God was leading them in a certain direction. They weren't sure exactly where or what their mission was, but she said it was really big. Bonnie and Herf saw themselves as the two witnesses from the book of Revelation in the Bible. In short, the witnesses spread a message of judgment. They get martyred, resurrected, and then taken to heaven in a cloud. While Herf and Bonnie believe that cloud was actually a spacecraft or a UFO. They started referring to themselves as the two, believing that they would be killed, resurrected, and transported on a spaceship in what they called the demonstration. They believed their main purpose was to prepare others for ascension to the next level. Bonnie and Herf believed that Jesus went to heaven, which they referred to as the evolutionary level above human, in a spaceship, and that Herf came to earth from that same realm, bringing with him the Heavenly Father, who was in the form of Bonnie Nettles. They wrote a pamphlet outlining their core beliefs and handed them out on the street. They visited churches and spiritual groups. To finance their trip, they worked odd jobs and even sold their own blood. After 17 months on the road, they returned to Houston, Texas in May 1974, where they gained their first follower, a woman named Sharon Morgan. Sharon abandoned her children to join Bonnie and Herf, which is one of the things that freaks me out the most about cults, just how easily parents walk away from their own children. But Or they bring them into it as well. But it is interesting in this scenario that oh, they all felt like that was a part of it. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look. I would rather you leave the kids behind than bring them into that world, but... Yeah. Oh, boy. Ah. So Sharon only stayed with them for a month before she returned to her family, but she left them her credit cards to use with her blessing whenever they needed. But Sharon's husband didn't like that, so after a few months, Herf and Bonnie were arrested for credit card fraud, but the charges were eventually dropped. 
But soon after, Herf was arrested again when it was discovered he rented a car in St. St. Louis, Missouri, nine months prior, and just hadn't bothered to return it. Wow. He He was sentenced to six months in jail. Bonnie visited Herf daily so they could work out the details of their belief system that they still hoped to spread to the world. They added elements from Bonnie's interest in astrology, Herf's religious upbringing, and their shared love of science fiction. It began under the name uh, Total Overcomers Anonymous, as well as the name Human Individual Metamorphosis, but in later years it took on the name Heaven's Gate. To spare any confusion, I'm just going to refer to it as Heaven's Gate for the episode. Yeah. When Herf was released from prison, they hit the road again to spread the word about Heaven's Gate. They held meetings anywhere people were willing to listen, saying they were looking for uh, to recruit like-minded followers who they referred to as the crew. At the events, they would tell those in attendance that they were beings from another realm referred to as the next level who were interested in helping people to ascend to a higher evolutionary level. Uh, In April 1975, uh, they spoke in front of a metaphysical group at the home of Joan Culpepper in Los Angeles. The group's leader, Clarence Klug, told Joan about Herf and Bonnie and said they want to talk about UFOs. At the time, Joan had recently started teaching meditation and spiritual counseling after losing her job at an advertising agency. Joan said, quote, they laid it on the line that night. They were very stern. There was not any kind of loving kindness or nurturing. They said that we would die, be assassinated, and anyone who followed would travel with them on a spaceship to a higher level to heaven. At the time, Herf and Bonnie introduced themselves as Guinea and Pig. They went by many names over the years. We will get into that in a moment. Uh, Many of the people at the meeting described Bonnie and Herf as charismatic leaders with an important spiritual message. Uh, Of the 80 people that were present, 25 were wooed into joining Heaven's Gate. Joan followed the group to Oregon and then Wyoming, but found herself constantly at odds with the leaders. And six weeks later, she and another member were left behind in Arizona. (laughs) Guess that's what happens when you disagree with the leaders. After that, Joan spent years publicly denouncing Heaven's Gate. She would go to any meetings she could find and just sit and glare at them, (laughs) which I love that energy. Uh, She even opened a halfway house for former members. At first, Joan believed the two were just charlatans preying upon the goodness of others. Decades later, she said, quote, in retrospect, I think they believed their message to the end with all their hearts. They thought they were going to that spaceship. On September 14th, 1975, Bonnie and Herf held a meeting at the conference room at the Bayshore Inn Motel in Waldport, Oregon. They put up posters all over town that read, quote, Two individuals say they were sent from the level above human and will return to that level in a spaceship or UFO within the next few months. This man and woman will discuss how the transition from a human level to the next level is accomplished and when this may be done. And while the word UFO is in bold, large letters at the top of the page, the poster is clear that it is, quote, 
not a discussion of UFO sightings or phenomena. Many later described the meeting as electric, with an overall euphoric feeling. Nearly 200 people attended that meeting, 20 of which sold their possessions and disappeared with Heaven's Gate when it left town. According to Bonnie and Herf, they had to renounce anything that tied them to being human beings, such as all earthly possessions and even their own family, uh, before they could be elevated to the next level. The mass disappearance made the CBS Evening News, where Walter Cronkite said, quote, It's a mystery whether they've been taken on a so-called trip to eternity or simply been taken. The newest members were told to bring camping equipment, and they were taken to Boulder Canyon, where they were split into groups. They had two daily meetings, and everyone was assigned tasks, such as keeping the fire burning or watching the sky for UFOs. What little money the group had came from donations from the church or from members themselves. After the mass disappearance in Oregon, Heaven's Gate started getting a lot of mainstream attention. The media referred to them as the Pied Pipers from Outer Space. And a newspaper article from January 1976 claimed the group was a fraud. Also, some of the families who were left behind in Oregon started a family network newsletter, which would keep track of the group, uh, such as how many members they had, approximately where they were located at the time, because they moved around a lot. Uh, Herf and Bonnie asked their members not to tell their families about that newsletter, because they didn't want the newsletter getting more attention. Herf and Bonnie worried that they would be tracked down by ex-members or the family members of current members, so they became nomadic, moving the group around as much as possible. And while at first they stayed at campgrounds, in 1978, they started renting mansions after some of the members inherited money. But they knew a large group of people living under one roof would be suspicious. And since they were trying to live under the radar, when they moved into a house, they would designate certain people who were allowed to go outside. That way, neighbors would see the same people all the time and not realize that 50 or more people actually lived in that house. Oh, wow. Which is, I'll say it, yeah, smart, but also terrifying to think of you didn't get picked to be an outside person. Yeah. I mean, look, I love being in my home as much as the next person, probably more so. Um, But every once in a while, I got to go outside. Yeah. So, yeah, but. This is just this is just the beginning. This is barely scratching the surface oh, yeah. of things that made me go, what? But that's that's not the point. So after nine months of moving around, Herf decides the group needs to start doing an intense classroom series where they would be taught how to prepare themselves for the ascension to the next level. Eventually, these classroom sessions would be videotaped and sold to people across the world. But we will get into that later. Around this time, Herf and Bonnie who went by many names, including The Two, Guinea and Pig, Bo and Peep, Winnie and Pooh, and Him and Her, finally settled on the names that would remain with them for the rest of their lives. Herf became Doe, spelt D-O, and Bonnie became T, spelt T-I, names that were inspired by a song from The Sound of Music. For the sake of consistency, I will refer to Herf as Doe and Bonnie as T for the rest of the episode. 
And I know that you're going to be like, oh, this is going to get confusing. I'm going to forget who's who. And trust me, I understand that. Um, It will make sense much later and we'll get into it. But I will say I came across many articles that had them flipped where they had misnamed one for the other. And I was just like, well, that's slop. No, he's definitely dope. I know enough about oh, this I, case to right? know that too. Yep. Oh, 100%. Yep. Yep. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm not suggesting I was wrong. No. I'm saying, I'm saying it's wild. to. I understand how confusing it is, but I find it wild that someone would publish an article with the wrong. Sloppy. You know? Sloppy reporting. That's not what we do here. No, it's not what we do here. So, while members were seemingly okay with leaving their children, spouses, parents, friends, etc., some seemed to take issue adhering to the group's strict guidelines, which included no human-level relationships, no socializing, and no sex. T and Doe wrote a book called How and When Heaven's Gate, the Door to the Physical Kingdom Level of Heaven May Be Entered. In it, they outline the 17 guidelines of how a member of their crew should behave. Some of those guidelines include, you can't procrastinate. Well, guess what? I'm already out because that's all I do. Uh, you, you have to follow instructions without adding your own interpretation. You can't be physically clumsy. Well, that, I don't know I'm out. Well, I don't think anybody chooses that, though. Like, that's not a quirky bit you take on. That's just something naturally. But okay. Uh, You also have to avoid having private thoughts. Yep. Wow. Uh, Major offenses to their rules include lying to the teachers or anyone else from the group, breaking any instruction, keeping an offense to yourself, and permitting arousal in thought or action. To help keep members in line, the group had a thing called a check partner, where they would pair up members of the crew to make sure that the other person was following the rules. And the check partner was often an opposite personality type because they wanted to ensure that they wouldn't create a close relationship between check partners. And not surprisingly, followers started to drop off. So at some point, T and Doe would send their followers out across the country to try and recruit new members. Although when it came to members, Doe and T seemed more concerned with quality over quantity. They became controlling and pushed for rigid rule following to weed out the weaker non-believers and leaving only the most obedient and dedicated members in the group. As non-believers left, the energy of the group would increase, making the bond for those who stayed behind that much stronger. And look, I get it. On the surface, it seems crazy. Imagine someone coming up to you today and claiming that there are evil space aliens called Luciferians that tricked humans into believing that they were God, all while purposely preventing humans from evolving as they should. And on top of that, Mary was taken aboard a spaceship where she was impregnated with Jesus, and Doe is the second coming of Jesus, and he's accompanied by a woman who is the heavenly father in human form. Oh, yeah. And the world is ending, and you'll only survive if you join them in the giant spaceship that's coming to save them. When you hear it laid out like that, 
it sounds insane. And when you look at how many members Heaven's Gate has had over the years, it's shocking that so many people have bought into it. But the thing about Heaven's Gate is it appeared at the right time. In the 1970s, people were still feeling that hippie era of the 60s. They were seeking spiritual enlightenment. They were the first generation to believe in UFOs. And on top of that, the Vietnam War finally came to an end in April 1975 after nearly 20 years. So people had grown disillusioned with society and religious leaders and were looking for something else to believe in and a place to belong. And since cults seem appealing because they offer a sense of community or purpose or belonging, it makes sense that so many cults began around that same time. For example, Children of God, the Manson family, the People's Temple, and of course, Heaven's Gate. The New York Times estimated that in 1982, there were between 2,500 and 3,000 cults in the United States alone, with total cult members ranging between 300,000 to 3 million. Wow. Two, I mean, I can't, it's, it's a lot. And I mean, obviously, a lot of the cults weren't very well known. Not all of them became dangerous, this sort of thing, but... Um, but it's also interesting, like the idea of trends, like we see the, the serial killer trends yes. that happened later, right? Like there's so many sure. or there was that influx of so many serial killers at that one time. It's it's inter- It's just interesting that there was like that trend, like yeah. ha- like it's interesting that there's trends in like the macabre. You know what I mean? Like, oh, 100 yeah. percent. So two writers went undercover in Heaven's Gate very, very early on. And they wrote an article for Psychology Today in which they said, after being with the group for months and months, they found no evidence of brainwashing or manipulation. And they said that everything involved in Heaven's Gate was about free choice. Now, I don't know how much I believe that especially when it was very clear that the group practiced indoctrination by having each member dress alike, including similar short haircuts. They were all given new names, each six letters long, with the first three letters capitalized and the last three, everybody's last three letters were O-D-Y or O-D. For example, a man named Stephen became Sorody, spelled S-R-R, O-D-Y. A woman named Dana became Envody, E-N-V-O-D-Y. Basically, every member completely gave up their individuality. However, it was rationalized to them that they were simply discarding the parts of themselves that identified as human, which was necessary before being able to reach the next level. They also created their own vocabulary to remove the member's recognition or nostalgia with a perfect or a particular item. For example, instead of saying body, they said vehicle. House became craft. Money became sticks. And underwear became seat covers, which I actually kind of liked a little bit. <laughs> not the point. 
Each member also ate the exact same type and amount of food as all the other members at every meal. Uh, According to an ex-member named Richard Ford, there was a three-month period where the group only consumed a mixture of lemonade, cayenne pepper, and maple syrup. Three months. That's the master cleanse. Three months. That's that's something that people do. I'll talk about it at the end. Yep. Yeah, I can't wait. Uh, over time, the belief structure of the followers was replaced with the cult's belief structure. And I do feel, do I feel bad outright calling it a cult? No, because in one of the video sessions, Doe himself refers to Heaven's Gate as a cult. He said, and I quote, yes, it's a cult. It's the cult of cults. It's the cult of truth. But the first thing that proved to me that this cult was dangerous and manipulative, and I'm not meaning in the research because I knew the the overarching story, but I'm meaning like in the time, like in the history timeline of the uh, of the cult existing. The thing that proved to me that it was dangerous and manipulative, and this is going to sound like a joke, but I am serious. It's when Doe said that the Borg from Star Trek Next Generation were a good model. And that, quote, becoming a member of the Borg is like ascending to the next level. Now, I don't know how much our dear listeners are familiar with the beloved 90s sci-fi program Star Trek TNG. But for those who are not, let me put it this way. Of all the bad guys on that show, the Borg are easily the worst. The worst. They're basically these ugly-ass alien cyborgs who have a linked hive mind called the Collective. They use assimilation to forcibly transform people and other aliens into drones just like them. It's a horror show, but according to Doe, being a cog in the wheel is helpful to the Collective overall. Well, afraid. I mean, yeah, it, if you're looking at it from that point of view, they were organized. Mm. <laughs> right? Jesus. Uh, a phrase that the Borg often say is resistance is futile. And when I learned that Doe believed that Borgs were something he aspired his cult to be, that was the moment I knew there was no going back for him in this world. As far as cults go. Yes. I say. And yes. The cult members were allowed to watch TV, but only Doe-approved TV shows and movies, which included various uh, versions of Star Trek, The Sound of Music, The X-Files, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. They also kept a diagram that showed where each cult member was allowed to sit when they watched TV, as the more senior members uh, were given better seats. But it's not surprising that what they watched and even where they sat while they watched it was so regimented. To keep control over the cult, Doe had to have a say in every single aspect. According to a former member, quote, he wouldn't let them see anything but what he wanted them to see. He made it into a power game. But then Doe ran into a problem. In the early 1980s, T a.k.a. Bonnie Nettles, was diagnosed with cancer. In 1983, the cancer 
got so bad that T had to have an eye removed. Soon after, doctors told her the cancer had spread throughout her body. And on June 19, 1985, T died from liver cancer at the age of 57. She was in Parkland Memorial Hospital under the pseudonym Shelley West. Her death certificate claimed she was a self-employed writer who lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and was married to a man named Jonathan Rolf West, none of which was true. I assume it was all a cover, as I could not find any marriage records for T after her divorce from Joseph Nettles, and in case I wasn't clear earlier, T and Doe were not in a sexual nature type relationship. So sadly, T's family weren't told about her death until several months later. Her daughter Terry started to grow concerned for her mother, so Terry tried reaching out but got no response. Then on March 22, 1986, nine months after the fact, two Heaven's Gate members named Liv and Dan showed up at Terry's doorstep to say that T had died. They told Terry that her mother's dying wish was that Terry would never find out about her death. Then they gave Terry photos of her mother and left. Months later, Doe mailed Terry an audio recording where he apologized for waiting so long to reach out, but he reiterated it was because he was honoring T's final wishes of her daughter never knowing that she died. Now, T's death caused two problems for Doe. First, of course, the emotional problems. T was his platonic companion, his best friend. She had given him a purpose in life. Without her, he felt lost. Until his own death nearly 12 years later, any time Doe ever mentioned T's name, he broke down in tears. Even though they had been given advanced warning that the cancer had spread, Doe truly did not believe that T would die before the spaceship took them to the next level. He was lost, so in October 1985, Doe told the cult members to travel home to see their families. And while they all did make trips home, only one member chose not to return after visiting family. Right. Uh, but up to that point, Doe had refused to let the members communicate with anyone outside the cult. But now he was outright telling them to go. Because clearly, T's death had an immense impact on him. And maybe part of his struggle was the fact that T's death completely contradicted the teachings of Heaven's Gate. <laughs> and Doe needed some time to reevaluate which is the second and biggest problem that T's death caused for Doe. Up until T's death, the group had been told if they rid themselves of everything that made them human, they would chemically and biologically transform into extraterrestrial beings who would be transported aboard a spacecraft that would take them to heaven or the next level. So it was hard for members to understand how T died before the spaceship arrived to save them all. And further, it went against their teachings as T was such a devoted member to the cult, and yet her body didn't ascend to the next level after she died. Doe knew he needed to change things up so that it all made sense. 
So while Doe had previously said the transformation to the next level would be a physical one, where their bodies would ascend to the next level, he now claimed the bodies would remain behind and the ascension would be a spiritual one. So Doe tried to explain things by saying the consciousness leaving the body was the equivalent of them leaving Earth on a spaceship. So the human body, or vehicle, as they called it, was only meant to carry them on their journey, and the vehicles could be abandoned when they were ready to ascend. Doe said that T's vehicle had broken down, and that while it looked like cancer to the doctors, what had actually happened was that T's next-level consciousness had burned up her vehicle as she joined the next level as planned. The only reason he didn't go with her was because he had more work to do before it was his turn. After T's passing, Doe edited his teachings to add that, quote, it could happen that before that spacecraft comes, one or more of us could lose our physical vehicle due to recall, accident, or at the hands of some irate individual. Whether it was meant to just keep followers around or protect himself from the truth, Doe altering his views on death unexpectedly sent the cult in a completely different direction. I also hate the thought that he referred to her death as just a recall. Yeah. You know? Uh, and while they did not realize it at the time, T's death was the catalyst to the tragic deaths of 39 people over a decade later. And we'll get into that more after the break. I am riveted. I thought I knew everything about this case, but it's true as always that I absolutely did not. So let's grab a drink, hit the can, and come back with more about the Heaven's Gate cult on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. What's up, buddy? Wow. <laughs> What's up, Barbara? <laughs> um, welcome back to True Crime and Cocktails, everyone. <laughs> I've had some wine. Uh, yeah. We're, of course, discussing the Heaven's Gate cult. Before the break, Christy was outlining... Uh, T's death, the restructuring of the Heaven's Gate ideologies. What do we got now? Well, membership in the cult was on the decline, if you can believe it. 
at its peak in the 70s, there were 200 members in Heaven's Gate. But by 1980, they were down to about 80. And after T's death, their numbers continued to plummet. Doe went into damage control and decided the only way to help their numbers grow was to go public, even though they'd operated under the radar for over 15 years. So on May 27, 1993, they published a huge ad in USA Today that took up a third of the page, saying, UFO cult resurfaces with final offer, and that it was, quote, the last chance to advance beyond human. Over the next few months, Heaven's Gate continued to advertise themselves in newspapers and magazines across the United States and worldwide. And if anyone contacted them and showed a genuine interest in the cult, they would send them books and videotapes of their lessons. Then they decided it was time to step up their game. And in January 1994, they set out on the road to hold public meetings to spread the word as Doe and T had done 20 years earlier. According to Heaven's Gate website, quote, We sold all our worldly possessions except for a few cars and changes of clothing and set out cross-country holding free public meetings from coast to coast for nine months. Now, I find it interesting that they had any possessions to give up, as letting go of all earthly possessions was literally step one of joining them in the first place. Great point. But either way... They got rid of most of their stuff and went out to locate additional crew members. Unfortunately, their events didn't draw a crowd like they used to. For example, some of their first events in the mid-70s saw crowds of like 150 to 200 people, whereas an event in Chicago in July 1994 was only attended by 40 people and none of them joined the cult after the meeting. So to help amplify their voices, they did countless radio, TV, and newspaper interviews, which, according to Heaven's Gate themselves, allowed them to nearly double their numbers. Then in September 1995, they started using the internet, which was very new at the time. They issued statements regarding their departure from Earth, which they believed was imminent. They have believed it was imminent since 1974, but... I guess there's no time frame on imminent in their world. Yes. But while using the internet, Heaven's Gate members posted essays, videotaped lectures, and filled message boards with their teachings. They also published a book, which was four inches thick, that outlined their beliefs. And even though they were very publicly advertising themselves and the fact that they believed the Earth was coming to an end they were very careful to keep themselves hidden to avoid any trouble from non-believers. So they posted, they used post office boxes and phony addresses instead of their actual home address. And when they registered their website domain, they gave their contact information as an internet service provider in Tennessee and a Ramada Inn in Denver. Oh, wow. In September 1995, the group posted on their website, quote, The response was extremely animated and somewhat mixed. 
However, the loudest voices were those expressing ridicule, hostility, or both, so quick to judge that which they cannot comprehend. This was the signal to us to begin our preparations to return home. The group had decided that negativity and non-believers were destroying the planet and the end was nearing. Or more specifically, they said that, quote, the weeds had taken over the garden and truly disturbed its usefulness beyond repair. It is time for civilization to be recycled. So in this, the beginning of the end, Doe decided he needed to take things a step further. He brought the group together and asked them if he gave them each $100 to spend on themselves. What would they buy? But the thing is, when they all joined, he asked them to give up their possessions and hand over any money that they had. So to ask these devoted followers what they would buy for that much money really kind of left them shook. But again, I just don't think that Doe was ever the same after T's death and he was grasping at straws to find another connection like he had with her. And somehow his solution to this was to give each member a gold wedding band during a strange ceremony where each member essentially married him. (laughs) Wow. They all stood in a circle and one by one they approached him. He would kiss them on the forehead and give them each a ring. And what it really boils down to is that Doe, when he lost T, he lost his support system. So he in turn then used all the members as his new support system. He wanted them as dedicated to him as T was. And I'm sure there was a part of him that believed if they were all married, then they wouldn't be able to leave him like T did because everyone handles grief in their own way. However, according to former members, after that ceremony, Heaven's Gate went from focusing on the message to focusing on the messenger, which caused many members to become disillusioned with the group and leave, despite some having been there since the very beginning. And things continued to change within the group. Doe continued to spiral out of control. He became incredibly strict about the rules, especially those regarding sex. One of the early Heaven's Gate followers was a man from California named Dick Jocelyn. After T's death, Jocelyn became Doe's right-hand man. But one day, out of nowhere, Doe told Jocelyn he was being replaced by a man named John Craig, who would later become known as Ethereal Brother Logan. Doe said that his vehicle had become attracted to Jocelyn's vehicle, and for Doe's sake... Jocelyn needed to leave. And while I don't think that any of that was told to the members in the moment, somehow that led to the idea of castration. Oh my God, I know, I know. Castration, of course, being surgery that removes the testicles to stop the production of sex hormones. It was suggested by Sirodi, one of the more passionate and obedient members of the group, Now, Doe had been struggling with his own sexuality since his youth. He decided, yeah, castration was the way that was going to fix everything. However, he told the male members of the group that they could be castrated if they wanted, 
and the decision was ultimately up to them. Now, because the cult was working mostly underground, they decided that they didn't want to go to a doctor for the castrations, so the plan was to perform the surgeries with the help of a member who was a former nurse. They set up a room in the house and hung a sign above the door that read Mexico, so that if anyone ever asked, they could later claim they went to Mexico to have the procedure done. Wow. Uh, Talk about a loophole. And surprisingly, the male members of the group lined up, hoping to be the first chosen for the procedure. Sorodi ended up being the first, and not so surprisingly, there were complications. <laughs> oh, God. Sorodi, yeah, Sorodi became quite ill. The members panicked, but not enough to get him to a hospital right away. First, they called a priest. And that priest refused to get involved. (laughs) (laughs) And that was his prerogative. You know what I mean? It absolutely was. Absolutely. Uh, And when Sorodi continued to get worse, they finally dropped him off at a hospital. After which, a few cult members drove to a nearby body of water and threw Sorodi's testicles off a pier to dispose of the evidence. Shockingly... After witnessing that trauma, the men suddenly weren't too keen on the (laughs) idea of castration. Doe initially said that they had gone too far and they should not continue this. But when they found a doctor who was willing to perform the surgery, seven members, including Doe, went through with it. So at this point, Doe seems to be just full spiraling and is doing what he can to increase their membership, as he believed the end of the world was imminent. Then in July 1995, amateur astronomers Alan Hale and Thomas Bopp independently discovered a comet which would come to be known as the Hale-Bopp Comet. According to NASA, it was one of the brightest comets to reach the inner solar system in recorded history. It had distinctive twin blue and white tails and was said to be closest to the Earth in March 1997. Christy, she's a science nerd. Side note. According to NASA, the Hale-Bopp comet was closest to Earth on March 22, 1997 at 120 million miles or 193 million kilometers away. For reference, the sun is 93 million miles or 150 uh, thousand kilometers or 150 million kilometers from Earth. It is predicted that the Hale-Bopp comet will be visible from Earth again in the year 4385. <laughs> yeah none of us are gonna see that and that's okay well unless we get that time Uh, traveling going at some point that'd be nice uh and while the name is similar don't confuse hale bop with halley's comet a short period comet which was last visible from earth in 1986 halley's comet is visible from earth every 75 to 79 years and it is expected to be visible again in 2061 Oh, and if somehow we are still doing this show (laughs) (laughs) in 40 years, (laughs) I'm going to force us to just that week will be a rerun of this episode. (laughs) We'll have enough by then. (laughs) 
Oh my god. Oh god, I hope we're not. I say that with peace and love, but wow. 40 years? Oh my god. In 2061, I better be doing all of about fuck all. I was gonna say, we're gonna be in our 80s. I think it's over. Like I think I think 65 we retire. That's still another oh, I... 25 years for me. <laughs> I truly think at some point we are going to, you know, the show will end. We'll have re- we'll retire later on after that. But I think I could absolutely see us a couple of old biddies deciding to dust off those microphones again in our eighties and do basically like a Golden Girls podcast. But like, we're the Golden Girls now. What's up, everybody? <laughs> Welcome to this octogenarian episode of True Crime and Cocktails. <laughs> oh, I assume we'd get a new name by then. Oh, but if we were doing a throwback, you know, I just felt like it was... Oh, I would like that a lot. Yeah. I yeah. just... I just wonder where technology is going to be by then. Like, podcasts might not even exist anymore in 40 years. They didn't exist 40 years ago. Somehow I feel it's everything is going to be live, like everybody will just like tap the microphone that's in their head or speaker system that's built into their face. And that will somehow uh, let them hear us as we go. Oh God. And you know, what's going to piss off our older viewers is when the young ones discover us for the first time. You know what I mean? Like when I was at that Foo Fighters concert and I overheard that young kid say, I guess Dave Grohl paid and played in some other band, you know, like go home, sir. Like, I know. Stop. Anyway, I digress. Please get back to it. I know this is a long one. I don't need to be taking you on a on a meander. No, look, I wanna I wanna go there. I wanna go there. Especially when I just even jokingly suggested we we would do this podcast for 41 years. <laughs> well More. Oh no, 41 what? years total, I guess. So Yeah, got it. So I guess what I'm saying is um well, brace yourself, listeners, because Hallie's Comet will be our final episode <laughs> in 2061. That's when we'll really oh. throw in the towel. Oh, God. Yeah. I, yeah, for our sake, yes. we God, we need a break. I can't imagine doing that for 40 years. No. Uh, it feels like 40 already. We're <laughs> it, does. it does. It does. <laughs> oh, God, the idea. I mean, look, it's not... At least I'm saying we're doing this in 2061 and not 4385. <laughs> oh yeah, but you know, there's also the possibility we'll get frozen. They'll they'll de- we'll have a, a whole thing sure. where it's like defrost us in 4384. So we have sure. a year to kind of acclimatize or whatever. Well, look, it's possible that I mean, if time travel becomes a thing in our lifetime mm-hmm. and we can use it because I know we've got a lot of work to do. Sure. Um, I would like to to borrow the machine because I have a few places that I would like to be. Sure. Yeah. I want to be at that. <laughs> I want to be at that NHL playoff between uh, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia when it went for like fucking five overtimes and Brian Boucher uh, shout out to him. He will never hear this. Um, my favorite Flyers goalie uh, of all time. Um, and one of my favorite goalies of all time. Uh, he uh, he was a rock. 
and I love him for it. I was and at I, work that day. I want to be where the people are. <laughs> I like that a lot. All I right. like that my list is just going to be uh, really very specific sporting games I'd like to go to. And the uh, Lenny Kravitz concert where he ripped across his pants. I didn't see it coming. Oh, God, that's good. That's good. That's how I feel. Yep. That's where I'm at. Mm-hmm. Ooh. God, is it warm in here? Yep. That's what I'll say at that concert. Hello. Anyhow. God, this is... <laughs> what? what a mess of you. <laughs> I cannot be doing this in 40 years. Oh, I, I think if we're doing this in four years, it'll be a miracle. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh God. Mm. Oh my God. Yeah. Well. Nope. I'm gonna. I was. Gonna- <laughs> I just had this vision of future you in the past at Lenny that Lenny Kravitz concert, and you being like in your 60s to 70s, so an older gal, and you just turning the front row center, front row, and you're not there with anyone. You're there alone, and you're just yeah. keep turning to the people, and you're like, keep watching, keep watching. Someone turns to go leave up. Now's not the time for water. Trust me. Stay here. And I open a bag and hand out waters to everybody in the front. And you've got, you pull out the biggest telephoto lens. <laughs> just the big. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I absolutely could see that. And then you just yell, free Willy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, we, God, there's no way mentally we're going to survive. Uh, 40 years. We we'll will see. be shells. We'll see. I mean, if this is the mental capacity they're getting now? Well, yeah, we'll, we'll be attracting a different audience by then, but, you know. It's true. It's true. I mean, and by then, will I have mentioned every possible crush? No. Maybe. No. I don't think it's, I don't think that there can be a cap to it. There's always going to be someone new. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. That is true. It's bigger than me. God, I don't know. Look, I'm already off the I'm already off the rails. If I'm gonna mention goalies, <laughs> a shout out to a dear friend of the podcast, uh Allie. Uh I want you to know uh Kelly Rudy goes on the list. <laughs> Rudy is spelt H-R-U-D-E-Y. <laughs> Dear Allie keeps a total yep. list of all of the crushes that I mentioned. Both of it's us. It's getting obscene. Yes. Yeah. Well, yes. At first, there were so you there were few. You have come a long way. I have. I somehow took that as a challenge to just keep ramping up. Well, this is just who I am. It is. <clears throat> oh, God. All well, right. So back to the mass yeah. suicide. <laughs> <laughs> Look. There has to be some sort of light. Oh, of course. Or it's or we're not making it to 2061. Thank you kindly. 
2061. God. And to think 4385 scared me more. Mm -hmm. Um, but, But now, no, I'm frightened of 2061, but can't think of it. Anyhow. Oh, my God. I have a child who'll be 50. Don't think about that. I can't. I can't. Okay, back to this. Mm-hmm. So, so it gets reported that this mass comet was discovered in the sky. And of course, conspiracy theorists start to question if the comet is going to get close enough that it'll actually strike Earth. And at this point in time, many religious groups already believed the world was going to end either on or before the year 2000. Anyone who survived Y2K, I think, can remember the sheer panic in the world that thought that the world was just shutting off uh, when it hit 2000. Yeah. Um, So the comet just kind of ramped up everybody's fears, especially when a group allegedly spotted an object riding in the shadow of Hale-Bopp. And the object was said to be four times the size of Earth. People like AM radio host Art Bell started to theorize that the object was going to collide with Earth and that we were officially at the end of times. Doe and his followers believed that the massive object was actually the spaceship that they had been waiting for. And when it came out that the massive object didn't really exist and that it was all just some hoax, Doe pushed the idea that the Hale-Bopp comet was the actual spaceship. So it signified to Doe the fine, it was time to go. In October 1996, Doe released a video called Planet About to Be Recycled, Your Only Chance to Survive, Leave With Us Now. But how were they going to physically leave? Well, Doe believed that their souls would be picked up by the spaceship. For that to happen... They needed to rid themselves of their vehicle or human vessel. And this is another case of Doe changing the original Heaven's Gate ideologies to try and explain a new situation. He did it after T died, when he went from saying that their bodies would ascend uh, and then said suddenly, no, no, your body's actually going to be left behind. And now he's claiming the members, in order for them to ascend at all, They actually had to take their own lives. When Heaven's Gate was first founded, they were openly against suicide. As they believed, the suicide would not allow their consciousness to leave their vehicle to join the next level. And that to them, suicide was, to quote the Heaven's Gate writings, quote, to turn against the next level when it is being offered. But now... With the comet passing by, Doe believed the only way to accomplish their goal was to rid themselves of their vehicles. This, of course, turned off many members of the group who found it difficult to accept the changed ideology after nearly 20 years. So members started to leave, even those who had been there since the beginning. But yet there were dozens of loyal members who chose to stay some of which had only been with the group for a short period of time. Doe believed that it had been timed right, it had to be timed right when the comet was closest to Earth, so they planned out their deaths in advance, knowing their final days would be in March 1997. 
Although they didn't announce their specific plans publicly, they did continue to let the world know it was coming to an end and that Heaven's Gate was their only chance for survival. In December 1996, they started uploading as much content to their website as possible. They sent floppy disks of the entire site to people in Brazil and Poland in the case the U.S. government took the website down after their deaths. And I shouldn't say deaths because that is not what they called it. To Doe and his followers, they weren't dying. They were graduating to the next level. So in the months leading up to the graduation, they treated the time like a massive vacation. They took trips to SeaWorld, the San Diego Wild Animal Park. They went to Mexico. They even went to Las Vegas, where they gambled $20 at the Stratosphere. And I know what you're thinking. How did they afford to take trips anywhere? Where was the money coming from? I asked myself that same question when I learned they were living in a huge mansion. Well, it turns out that many of the Heaven's Gate members were quite proficient at computers and the internet, which was a relatively new thing in the mid-90s. They started a company called Hire Source, which designed web pages for other businesses. They also did system analysis and developed multimedia applications. According to their website, quote, the Hire Source site promised we have focused an outgrowing we have focused on outgrowing the artificial limitations this society has programmed all of us to accept in personal conduct and task efficiency. We can produce at a level of efficiency and quality unequaled in the computer industry. And if that doesn't make you want to hire them, their company promise will. The promise, quote, higher source can go from cool to corporate like a chameleon. <laughs> wow. That absolutely doesn't make sense. But the cult also did make some money selling VHS tapes and books of their teachings to people across the world. But their web business was the largest part of their money. So that's how they were able to afford trips with large groups of people and afford to live in a mansion that had a rent of $7,000 a month which translates to just over 13000 in 2023. The house itself was sparsely decorated with metal bunk beds and plastic patio furniture, although there was a room full of computer equipment where they operated their business. Some of their clients included a British automobile parts dealer, the San Diego Polo Club, and a Christian music store. In early March 1997, BBC documentary maker... Louis Theroux reached out to Heaven's Gate to ask if they wanted to be part in his documentary series, Louis Theroux's Weird Weekends. They responded, quote, at the present time, a project like this would be an interference with what we must focus on. And what were they focusing on at the time? Their graduation. Doe released a video on March 19, 1997, announcing that the end was coming. The next day, every member of the group recorded exit interviews, which were then mailed to family members as well as former members who were asked to spread the word after they were gone. Some of the videos encouraged others to leave with them, saying that it was, quote, the last chance to evacuate Earth before it's recycled. 
Now, full disclosure, I did not watch the videos in any way, nor did I seek it out. I'm sure the videos are available online somewhere for those who have an interest, but I honestly have zero interest in putting myself through that. I have seen short clips from those videos in a documentary, and that was enough. Seeing these people put on happy faces and pretending to be excited about what was coming when, if I'm being honest, they looked terrified and uncertain, and it was unsettling at best. For example, one woman said, quote, we couldn't be happier about what we're going to do. And then another woman said, quote, we are all happy to be doing what we are doing. Which, I'm no expert, but it feels like they're reading some sort of script and that maybe, just maybe, they weren't as happy as they seemed, which makes the loss of life that much more tragic. And yes, I know some of them truly believed that taking their own life would get them to the next level, but I also believe that some of them only went through with it because they were so deep in that they didn't know how to get out. While no one was forced to stay in the cult against their will, there was an immense pressure from within the cult to stay. And just imagine being in that cult for 10 to 20 years. Where would you go if you got out? It would be overwhelming to think about. It's part of the same reason why some people stay in abusive relationships as long as they do. In the video, they're all wearing matching black shirts with patches on the left arm that read, Heaven's Gate Away Team, something clearly influenced by their love of Star Trek. And speaking of which, member Denise Thurman ends her interview with the line, quote, one last thing we'd like to say is 39 to beam up. The group was last seen around 2 p.m. on Friday, March 21st, 1997, when they all went for supper at the Marie Callender's restaurant in Carlsbad, California. They all ate the same meal, which was ordered in advance and set up before they arrived. They had salads with tomato vinegar dressing and turkey pot pie with iced teas to drink. They also had blueberry topped cheesecake for dessert. The staff said they were all very polite and friendly. The group was in the restaurant for less than 45 minutes. They paid the $350 bill in cash. Then at 3.15 p.m. on March 26th, an anonymous caller phoned 911 from a payphone to say they had a tip about a mass suicide at a mansion in Rancho Santa Fe, a suburb in San Diego, California. When the police arrived on scene two hours later, they discovered the bodies of 39 people, all in varying stages of decomposition. It was, to date, the largest mass suicide on U.S. soil. The anonymous caller who tipped off police was former cult member Richard Ford, who also went by the name Rio D'Angelo. Richard said that he had been with the group for three years, and he left one week prior to their deaths. He said he was meant to stay behind to share the Heaven Gate, Heaven's Gate story with the world. Richard also later admitted he had been tasked with going to the house after the final deaths and filming the scene. A back door of the house was left unlocked for him. After he left the house, his boss convinced him to call 911. So let's talk about the scene. 
The victims found included 21 women and 18 men, ranging in age from 25 to 71. They were all dressed in long sleeve black shirts, black pants, and black Nike shoes. The shoes, which were the decades model, have become a collector's item since then. Following the deaths, Nike discontinued the model. However, you can still find pairs of them on eBay that go for thousands of dollars. Nike released a statement saying, quote, We've heard all the jokes. The Heaven's Gate incident was a tragedy. It had nothing to do with Nike. There were comments that the shoes were chosen because Doe liked Nike and that Nike's slogan, Just Do It, was often set around the house as Just Do It. However, the person who sold them the shoes says that it seems they were chosen simply because Doe was given a group discount on them, not because they were a certain brand or style. I had heard that it was because the swoosh looked like the comet. <clears throat> oh, well. I don't know if that's true or it's not. It's possible. I mean, I, this is just what's coming from the person who sold them the shoe. Yeah. Maybe they didn't want to alert him. Maybe they were trying to make the conversation as quick as possible. It was probably a combination of things, too. Yeah. We're looking for 40 pairs. What can you do for us? Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. But he did say, he was like, ooh, is this for a basketball team or something? And they responded with something like that. Creepy. Yep. Disturbing shoe side note. Please. In 2008, professional skateboarder Todd Jordan who was sponsored by Nike, designed a pair of black and purple Nike SB Dunk Highs. The shoes were said to be an homage to the uniforms and purple shrouds used by the Heaven's Gate cult members. Perhaps because they were created in poor taste, the shoes were never released, although sample pairs can be found on online auctions for thousands of dollars. I'll post a photo of those shoes, uh, the ones from 2008 uh, on our socials at True Crime and Cocktails on Instagram and Facebook. I don't know what I'm going to do with Twitter as Shmilon Schmusk has made that site almost unusable. <laughs> That's another Schmerich Schmogel, but anyhow. Uh, so the bodies were all laid on beds or mattresses throughout the mansion with small canvas bags packed at their feet. Eyeglasses were placed neatly beside some of the bodies. The victim's hands were placed neatly at their sides. And 37 of the 39 victims had a purple diamond-shaped shroud covering the top half of their bodies. The other two didn't have the shroud because the suicides were committed in stages. The detailed plan of their death deaths were found in a blue binder at the scene. It was titled... The routine. Now, some of these details are a bit disturbing, so boop, 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 skip ahead. You know, that was me. Boop, boop, boop was my vir virtual telling you to skip ahead a bit uh, if you need. So the deaths occurred in four waves. The first two groups consisted of 15 people each, with seven in the third group and two remaining at the end. One group at, at a time would eat either applesauce or pudding laced with phenobarbital, take a shot of vodka, which may or may not also have contained phenobarbital, place a plastic bag over their heads, and lie down. 
after the first group of 15 died, a designated group of eight people would arrange the body, remove the plastic bag, clean the area, and then place a purple shroud over the body. After the second group of 15 were dead, another designated group of eight would do the same for the second group. And when two people were left to do the same for the final group, Doe was in the second group, which I find interesting because I assumed as the leader, he would have either been first or the very last, but he just chose to go randomly in the middle. Each of the victims had $5.75 in their pockets, which is in reference to the short story Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven by Mark Twain. In the story, Twain says that $5.75 is the, quote, cost to ride the tail of a comet to heaven. Also in their pockets, police found ID for each victim, as well as step-by-step instructions for how they were supposed to take their own lives, which included, quote, take the little package of pudding or applesauce and eat a couple of tablespoons to make some room to pour the medicine in, stir it up, and then eat it fairly quickly, drink the vodka beverage, lay back and relax. The thing that broke my brain, uh, that I will probably think about uh, at least until 2061, um, is that your body's natural instinct is to survive. So they would have been fighting having a plastic bag on their heads while they were conscious. And that would have been horrifying and traumatic for the others to witness. In the trash can behind the house, police found plastic bags tied with elastic bands, which had been used to suffocate the victims. The final two victims who cleaned up after the third group were the only ones found with plastic bags over their heads and no purple shrouds. According to the autopsies, the victims died from asphyxiation and lethal doses of phenobarbital. There were no signs of physical trauma. It is estimated that the deaths occurred over several days between March 24th to 26th, all 39 victims were ultimately cremated, and the thir- of the 39, 24 of them had been members of the cult since the mid-1970s. The story became instant fodder for late-night monologues. Even Saturday Night Live did multiple sketches, including a fake shoe commercial, mocking the cult just three days after the bodies were discovered. When asked about the mass suicide... Media mogul Ted Turner said, quote, it was a good way to get rid of a few nuts. Oh, boy. Mind you, we have to question Ted Turner's mental capacity as he cheated on ultimate badass Jane Fonda, which proves that Ted isn't exactly a sane man. But that's the thing with Heaven's Gate. When most people hear the story, the first instinct is just to write the victims off as crazy. But something to remember is that the main thing about cults is they appeal to people who are missing something in their lives, people who are looking for answers or trying to find a place to belong. And while some of the Heaven's Gate ideology was a bit out there by mainstream standards, most of the victims were good, regular people who got caught up in a world where they felt like they finally belonged, 
Most were well-educated, intelligent people from middle-class backgrounds and loving families. And yes, from what I've read, some of them joined the cult after experiencing traumas, such as the death of a loved one, divorce, depression. At least one or two uh, had been through war. Uh, so again, a regular person who felt lost and was looking for a place to belong. And while I don't have time to go deeply into the backgrounds of all 39 victims, as you know, I tend to go fairly deep when it comes to the victims, 39, there's just not the time. But I wanted to at least mention each of them as a reminder that they were human beings and not the joke that people seem to make them. Um, I truly believe their humanity gets lost whenever Heaven's Gate is mentioned. So it is a lengthy list. So bear with me. Uh, 35-year-old Dana Tracy Abreo was a paralegal from California. Her half-brother, Gary St. Louis, another member of the group, was a 43-year-old computer programmer, also from California. 66-year-old Marshall Herf Applewhite, known as Doe. Uh, there was 45-year-old Robert John Orancio was an artist from New York. 44-year-old Raymond Allen Borers was a commercial fisherman from Connecticut. 40-year-old LaDonna Ann Brigado was a computer consultant from Oregon. 53-year-old Margaret June Bull was a teacher from Washington. 42-year-old Cheryl Elaine Butcher was a self-taught computer trainer from Missouri. 48-year-old Michael Howard Carrier was born in Michigan. 54-year-old Suzanne Sylvia Cook was born in Texas. 62-year-old John Michael Craig was a developer from Illinois. 63-year-old Merva Eldry Deal, known as Betty, was born in Montana. 40-year-old Erica Ernst was an accountant from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. 44-year-old Alfonso Ricardo Foster was a bus driver from Michigan. 47-year-old Lawrence Jackson Gale was from Colorado. 42-year-old Darwin Lee Johnson was a musician from California. 40-year-old Jeffrey Howard Lewis was a massage therapist from Texas. We're getting there, I swear. 27-year-old Gail Renee Mater was a boutique owner from New York. 40-year-old Stephen Terry McCarter was born in North Carolina. 28-year-old Joel Peter McCormick was born in Washington, D.C. 44-year-old Nancy Diane Nelson was an artist from South Dakota. 59-year-old Norma Jean Nelson, known as Brandy, was born in Kansas. 53-year-old Susan Elizabeth Nora Pope was born in or was an editor from a computer company born in California. 41-year-old Lindley Ayerhart Pease was a car salesman from New Hampshire. 63-year-old Lucy Eva Pichot was a computer trainer from Colorado. 46-year-old Margaret Ella Richter was a computer expert from California. 50-year-old Judith Ann Wilbur Rowland was a homemaker from California. 39-year-old Brian Ann Allen Schaff, Schaff was from California. 56-year-old Joyce Angela Scala was a TV journalist from Minnesota. 44-year-old Susan Frances Strom was born in Nebraska. 
44-year-old Denise June Thurman was born in New York. 48-year-old David Cabot Van Sinderen was an environmentalist from Connecticut. 50-year-old Gordon Thomas Welch was born in New York. 45-year-old Julie Elmire Lamontaine was a nurse from Massachusetts. She became Doe's personal nurse after T's death in 1985. 38-year-old Marion McCurdy Hill, known as Yvonne, was a U.S. Postal Service worker from Ohio. She was the most junior member of the group, having joined Heaven's Gate just six months before the suicide. 58-year-old Thomas Alva Nichols was born in Illinois. He was the younger brother of Nichelle Nichols, who played Lieutenant Uhura, oh, you knew what I meant, uh, from the original Star Trek series. Uh, Michael Barr Sando was a former paratrooper from Massachusetts. At just 25, he was the youngest Heaven's Gate member to take part in the mass suicide. He joined the cult after going through Desert Storm in 1991. Jacqueline Opal Leonard was a medical assistant from Iowa and the oldest Heaven's Gate member at 71 years old. 40-year-old David David Jeffrey Moore was a computer engineer from North Carolina. He was one of the final two to die. I do not know which of the others was the second final member. Uh, And while it seems like just a parade of sadness, my point here is it's easy to look at the Heaven's Gate story and dismiss them as crazy, crackpot, strange, how whatever word you want to use. But the truth is, The victims were just regular people who met a very tragic end, if I will say, and an avoidable end. I think they all deserve to be identified since identity was the first thing that Heaven's Gate took from them. And I know that I said that I didn't have time to get into the backgrounds, and I don't, but I want to talk about one particular member. I read through so many of their stories, it was incredibly heartbreaking, because all some of the stuff I go into, uh, I don't have time to bring up on the show. And that's just something, it's just a cross you have to bear. But one of the stories hit me kind of differently than the others. So I'm going to tell you more about Yvonne, the member who had only been with the cult uh, six months before taking her own life. So Marion Yvonne McCurdy Hill, known as Yvonne, was born June 17, 1958, in Cincinnati, Ohio. She married Stephen Hill in 1989, and the couple had five children, including a six-year-old son, two sons under the age of five, and two newborn twin daughters. Yvonne worked as a mail sorter for the United States Postal Service, a position she held for 10 years. While Yvonne was pregnant with twins, their life was very stressful. They were excited about their daughter's arrivals, but they, when they found out they were pregnant, they weren't exactly expecting a baby, let alone two babies. And to top it off, they were having money problems. Their house was in foreclosure. It was a lot. Yvonne's husband, Stephen, was a science fiction enthusiast. And when he came across Heaven's Gate website online, he thought he found the answer to all their problems. Together, the couple read through Doe's teachings, both believing that joining would be the right move. So Stevens sent a message to the website admins to show an interest in joining. Soon after, on August 9th, 1996, their daughters were born. 
By then, Yvonne was so deep in the Heaven's Gate mindset that she feared the doctors were Luciferians. So Stephen had to stay with her at all times because she feared what they might do to her if they were left alone. And if it wasn't enough to prove that they were all in by that point, they named their daughters Dore and Tija in honor of the cult's founders. Wow. Less than two weeks after the girls were born, Stephen and Yvonne met the cult members in Las Vegas for a screening meeting prior to joining the cult. When they returned home, they both decided that joining the cult was the right move. So they contacted Stephen's mother, said that they were moving to California to be with God. In the span of one month, Stephen messaged the website, quit his job, gave away his possessions, and made arrangements for his children to stay with relatives. And just two to three weeks after welcoming twins, Stephen and Yvonne moved to California. When they first arrived, Doe kept them separated. According to Stephen, Yvonne was uncertain about being there, so much so that she was assigned not one, but two check partners. As you may recall from earlier, a check partner is someone who stays with you 24-7 so they can monitor each other's behavior and make sure no one is breaking any rules. Again, Yvonne was given two of these people and kept separated from her husband, which I'm sure was overwhelming at best. Three weeks into their stay, Yvonne told Stephen she wanted to leave. Stephen, who had developed an ear infection, agreed. Doe told Stephen his illness was a bad influence on the group, so he was sent to run an errand. When Stephen returned an hour later, Yvonne changed her mind and said she wanted to stay. She wouldn't give Stephen any reasons for changing her mind, just that she was where she was meant to be. And the fact that Yvonne wanted to leave, and after an hour alone with Doe, became more devoted than ever, is terrifying to me. I will never know what Doe said to Yvonne, but the idea will haunt my brain for the rest of my life. Stephen left the group and moved back to Ohio. For reasons I'll never know, he didn't try to see his children. He did see his oldest son once shortly after Yvonne's death, but from what I can tell, he never reunited with the others. Stephen kept in touch with Heaven's Gate through email as he worked on a plan to get Yvonne out. Then Stephen saw the news report about the mass suicide. He said, quote, that's it then. She'll be coming home any day. I knew she wouldn't be, have done any of that. The next day, he saw Yvonne's exit interview in which she said, and I quote, there's nothing here for me. When I read Yvonne's story, I immediately thought two things. One, is it possible that part of Yvonne's immediate desire to join the group stemmed from some sort of postpartum depression? When they first discovered the cult, they were having money problems and about to become par the parents of five children under the age of six. Stress and hormones can do funny things to a person, and they left just two to three weeks after the twins were born, which is an absolutely heightened time for a woman, especially when she just had a C-section, which is a major surgery. And then two... I couldn't stop thinking about the first article about Heaven's Gate in 1976 that made claims there was absolutely no sign of brainwashing in the cult. And maybe there wasn't in the beginning, but I absolutely believe there was by the end. 
How else would you explain a woman saying she wanted to leave and after spending an hour alone with the cult leader, suddenly deciding she was more devoted than ever and was where she was meant to be? What else would make a mother of five believe that there is nothing on earth for her? Yvonne was with the cult just six months before her death. She was 38 years <sighs> old. After the discovery of the bodies, former member Dick Jocelyn, who you may recall from earlier, publicly stated he feared that the mass suicide would lead to former cult members taking their own lives. Jocelyn said, quote, I'm now concerned for all those people who might want to make their exit that way. I'm talking of dozens of others that might say, I don't want to miss the boat. And while Jocelyn was wrong about the number of deaths, he was right that the math suicide did inspire more deaths. Within a year of the mass suicide, at least four men connected to the cult took their own lives. On March 31st, 1997, just days later, a man uh, went to the Marysville, California home of his friend Robert Leon Nichols and discovered that Robert had placed a plastic bag over his head and connected it with a hose to a propane tank. Robert had also covered mo most of his upper torso with a purple scarf. He left a note that read, quote, I'm going on the spaceship with Hale Bopp to be with those who have gone before me. Robert was 58 years old. It is unsure of how long or when or even if Robert was a member of Heaven's Gate. However, his suicide note is dated 10 a.m. March 28th. And by that point, the purple shrouds found on the victims at the scene had not been announced publicly. So obviously, Robert had some sort of inside information of some kind. Um, a fun fact about Robert, though, he was once a roadie for the Grateful Dead and was with them for so long, he once wrote a book about the band. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, on May 5th, 1997, two former Heaven's Gate members were discovered unconscious in a hotel in San Diego County. Like the other cult members... Wayne Cook and Charles Humphrey were found in black pants and Nike shoes with bags over their heads. Wayne was pronounced dead at the scene. He was 54 years old. His wife, Suzanne, was one of the victims of the mass suicide. Charles was taken to a nearby hospital where he managed to survive. After the attempt, Charles was interviewed by a newspaper where he said, quote, I still don't want to be here. I have no plans to go out and do this. However, I also have no plans to stay on this planet until the vehicle dies of old age. Months later, on February 20th, 1998, the body of Charles Humphrey was found in a tent in the desert near Ehrenberg, Arizona. His head was in a sealed plastic bag, which was connected to the car's exhaust pipe, as well as to a tank marked carbon dioxide. Charles was 55. He was found wearing black sweatpants and a black t-shirt with a Heaven's Gate away team patch on the sleeve. Next to the tent was a purple shroud and a note that read, do not revive. The note also contained the phone numbers of two of his family members. He also had $5.75 in his pocket. On May 13th, 1997, the aunt of James Perky Jr. received a letter that read, by the time you read this, I'll be gone. 
the aunt sent her son-in-law over to James's house, and when he knocked on the door, he heard a gunshot. James was 35 years old. He left a note that read, quote, I'm late. It's past time for me to go. The precious spirits have long since taken flight. At his home, there were pictures of the 39 deceased cult members cut out from a magazine with their Heaven's name or Heaven's Gate Odie names written underneath each photo. There was also a hand-drawn picture of 39 aliens being lifted into the sky. The HBO documentary referred to him as James Simpson. Wowzer. Yep, but we're not done yet. Dear listeners, we're going to take another break. We're going to get another drink. We're going to hit the can one more time and we're going to come back because there's even more about the Heaven's Gate cult on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the Heaven's Gate cult But Christy's got more. This episode is jam-packed. What you got for us? Well, at this point in the show, uh, I've usually wrapped things up. And we're moving right into our thoughts and theories. But before we do that, I I can't be stopped. Uh, So as the kids say on TikTok, surprise, shorty. Surprise, shorty. (laughs) Uh, Because that is one of our favorite audios for no reason, but um, any excuse to bring that up uh, publicly. So I found out a bunch of random things that I thought were interesting over the course of researching. Uh, I didn't have appropriate places to put them in my notes. Uh, so I'm just going to present them to you now in a list I've just simply called random things. I love it. Some are longer than others, but... Some are also very weird compared to others. So, shortly after the discovery of the bodies, Doe's son, Mark, who was about 40 at the time and hadn't seen or spoken to his father in 35 years, released a statement saying, quote, I am appalled by the things that have resulted from the actions of my father and others in that cult. I am deeply hurt by the knowledge that people have now lost their lives in connection with my father. It is sad to me that Mark felt he had to make an apology on his father's behalf, even though he barely knew the man. And I am angry 
at Doe for not only abandoning his child, but for putting this legacy on his shoulders. Is it fair to be angry at a man who possibly had a mental illness? No, but I'm fired up and it's too late to stop me now. So that's where I'm at. Uh, The day the bodies were found was allegedly the 37th birthday of T's son, Joe. Obviously, it is just an incredibly sad coincidence, but uh, still. Yeah. Uh, Former members of the cult had a reunion in the late 90s where they learned that despite being told they couldn't communicate with their families once they joined, T had been in contact with her daughter, Terry, the entire time. They spoke on the phone, although every time they did, Doe was listening in on the other end. Which makes it sound to me like almost a prison situation. Yeah. Where someone's being held captive, but I could be wrong. Uh, T sent Terry a series of letters. Allegedly, in a letter in 1984, Bonnie said she didn't know how to get out and that, quote, there wasn't a graceful way to leave. The letters stopped after that and T passed away about a year later. Is it possible that Heaven's Gate spiraled into something out of her control and T secretly wanted out but couldn't find a way? Is it possible she tried to leave and Doe stopped her? Uh, The house where the mass suicide took place was purchased in 1994 for $1.3 million by an Iranian entrepreneur named Sam... Oh, boy. Uh, Kuche Fahani, I believe. Uh, He started renting the property to Heaven's Gate in October 1996. After the incident, uh, Sam was quick to help with the police investigation. When police learned Sam was a witness for an investigation into local college officials who'd been receiving bribes. Sam was later convicted of fraud and conspiracy in that case and sent to prison. Wowzer. The house then went into foreclosure. The Heaven's Gate event dropped the property's value, which is a shame as it was a beautiful, huge house that came with a pool and a tennis court. In 1999, it was purchased by a local developer for $668,000, which is an amazing deal since the surrounding land was worth $1.4 million on its own. Some neighbors eventually bought the house, tore it down, and built another in its place. The name of the street has since been changed, and the house has been given a new house number in the hopes of preventing looky-loos. Mm. But according to Zillow, that house is the new house anyway, is currently worth $6.9 million. And while it is stunning, you couldn't pay me $6 million to live in that house. Gorgeous view, beautiful space, but energetically, I'd never sleep again. Yeah. New house or not, it's still on that same land. I, I just couldn't do it. Um, earlier, I mentioned Richard Ford, the former cult member who was the first to discover the bodies. Well, Richard brought his boss, Nick Matzorkis, with him to the scene when he discovered the bodies. It was Nick who convinced Richard to call 911. Nick 
founded the website ussearch.com five years prior to the incident, and he used the cult's company to design the website. Since Nick was at the scene, journalists were quick to interview him. And after seeing one interview, police in Ohio recognized Nick as a fugitive who'd skipped out on a felony conviction years prior. Whoa! Turns out Nick stole a car in Cleveland and was convicted for it in 1989. But before he could be sent to do his time, he skipped town. After being identified, Nick was briefly sent to prison before being released and allowed to make up the remainder of his sentence by performing community service. And because Nick Matzorkas is the most random man alive, in 1981, before the car conviction, before all that, he was the executive producer on the first songs that Madonna ever recorded? Huh. Uh, It was his own record label, too, uh, or his own recording. Um, But Madonna soon then signed with Warner, so the older songs were then kind of pushed aside. That is, until Nick and another producer released the 10 songs as an album called Pre-Madonna in 1997. The songs include Laugh to Keep from Crying, Crimes of Passion, Ain't No Big Deal, and Burning Up. It's just how I, yeah, I didn't think Madonna was coming up today, but there you have it. Wasn't on my bingo card, but here we are. Right? Yep. Uh, And one final thing for you today. The Heaven's Gate website. I mentioned earlier that before their deaths, the members sent floppy disks of their full site to people in other countries in the hopes that they could set up mirror sites if the U.S. government took down their original site. Well, as of May 2023, the original Heaven's Gate website is still up and running, and it looks exactly like it did back in the 90s, like some sort of internet times capsule. For those who remember that time frame, think angel fire Ah, aesthetics. Yep. Yeah. Uh, In mid-March 1997, the flashing words red alert were added to the top of the website. According to a post on Reddit by the alleged admins of the Heaven's Gate website, quote, we joined at the beginning in 1975 and have been with them for 45 years. There are us two here in Arizona and a couple more around the country. It is believed the admins are a married couple named Mark and Sarah King, who claimed they were asked to stay behind to keep the site running to help spread the cult's teachings. They said that they were given the job and they were honored to take it. They said, quote, the information must be available to mankind in preparation for their return. We don't know when that will be, but those who are interested will find the information. Even though Heaven's Gate seems uh, to only have four current members, the admins claim that four or five people ask about joining the cult every day. I assume very, very few of those are serious inquiries. I could be wrong. I'm probably not. Uh, But the admins also claim that they are still in contact with the 39 members who passed. And because of course it is, in February of this year, a Heaven's Gate biopic was announced. It is going to be called The Leader and is set to star Tim Blake Nelson as Doe 
and Vera Farmiga yep. as T. Some final thoughts. Did Doe come up with the suicide plan in the hopes that he would be reunited with T? Did he suffer from some sort of mental illness that made him believe everything he was preaching? Or was he tired of keeping up a facade? Long-term members had allegedly started to grow wary. They had been told about the world's ending being imminent for over 20 years. Maybe Doe was worried people might start leaving, and the mass suicide was a bold move by a man who just didn't want anyone to leave him. Or maybe he truly believed that it would leave him, lead him to the next level. Since we weren't there, we will never truly know. So Heaven's Gate will just remain the story of a group of people who went into the world searching for a place to belong, only to have their lives end in a senseless tragedy. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Christy Oxborough. Wow. Yeah. First of all, yeah. fabulous job. Well done. Oh, well. I learned things I didn't know, and it is remarkable. Um, all right. I'm just going to go through a few thoughts very quickly. Yeah. What's interesting, the first thing, going back to the beginning, was talking about Doe's first wife, or I guess only wife, technically. Yes. He was, other than when he married his entire cult population. Of course. Um, he was drafted in 1954, and she moved with him to Austria until 1956. I feel like that was very rare. When when Typically, when, when Americans are getting drafted, sure. they go to war or they go overseas, and they're partners stay at home. So I, that just struck me sure. as being like an interesting thing. Sure. Um, uh, yes. <laughs> that was my first thought. Uh, real hot take, Ash. Anyway. Um, no, I think it's great. Guinea. And I think, I don't know how often a fan, like, I don't know if they had the kids by then, but to like up and uproot people. Yeah. It feels weird. Feels weird. Um, guinea and pig just makes me think about how cute guinea pigs are, which also makes me think about hedgehogs, which I am on a real kick of seeing like pictures of hedgehogs sleeping. If you follow my Instagram, you know that I post them from time to time. Um, I think it's interesting that the meetings were described early on as being euphoric and electric. I think that really speaks oh, to how they were able to bring the people in that they were. But then I also, you know, when you think about it in the grand scheme of these kinds of things, and this isn't me. This is this is neither a pro nor a con. It's it's just a just a thought. Is that it is interesting sure. to me that in their height they were at two hundred people, which is a lot of people yes. on one level, but on another level it's not. Um, and the fact that it went down to eighty, and then of course it was thirty nine that had taken their own lives very sadly in the end, plus the people afterwards. But it's just interesting because to me. If you're meeting thousands of people on this like cross country tour and you manage to get 200 of them, um, that's impressive because, you know, whatever percentage rate, whatever. But then on the flip, I'm like, it does make me feel like this was really appealing to, because as we've talked about before, cults are always appealing to people who are looking for community, who are maybe lost, looking for guidance, all of these kinds of things, vulnerable people um, in, in many ways at times. Um, <clears throat> but again, it just feels to me like this, what this cult specifically offered 
was a very specific experience and and it attracted a very specific kind of person i feel um because again you know being described as electric and euphoric and these kinds of things it's like that's impressive but then on the other hand i'm like well then why weren't more people signing up and it's like well because yes there was layers right sure um i think it's incredibly sad that when they got into all of the rules and all of the stuff about celibacy and then, of course, the castrations, it makes me very sad that this was Doe's way of trying to combat his own internalized homophobia, right? Like, he oh, yeah. had had affairs with men. It was clear that he knew what his sexuality was, but he was through, you know, his father was a minister, the time period, all of these things – um, he was so averse to it that he not only implemented these things on himself, but then he created this group to also implement them on themselves. And it's just so sad to me that this whole thing, it feels like the root of it, the root of all of it for him was just finding ways to suppress his own inherent sexuality. And how sad. Yeah. hundred percent. None of, I feel like it's safe to say that if he had felt like he could live an authentic existence, I don't think any of this would have happened. No. You know? And that's, I don't know, that just, it makes me very sad. Um, It's fascinating that there was so many cults starting around that time. Um, The new vocabulary was fascinating to me. Money becoming sticks was interesting. Um, The fact that they were all eating the same foods and the exact same amount of food every day is kind of chilling but it speaks to again like dehumanizing people and yeah this whole thing these undercover writers like did they end up becoming cult members because it sounds like they would have or they just really fell prey to how charismatic he potentially was and we know that with the story later with yvonne an hour alone with him and she changed her mind about leaving so it it is also possible to me that these writers got duped but um I don't think there's any way to say that this was not dehumanizing, brainwashing, all of the above. Um, oh, 100%. I mean, it's possible it wasn't quite like that early on because I don't think they stayed with them. Right. They were with them for like a few months early and that was it. But I think things got worse later on. And right. And things especially got worse after T died. And then it was just like, well, best of luck. And then- Suddenly it went from two people in control. Right. And they're going to listen to the two of us to suddenly it's just one person in control. And I I think he just didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. And then realized he could easily manipulate people. Right. And so he just used that to make it so people would stay. Yeah. Now, I mentioned before the master cleanse. So what you were describing, it was like water with lemon juice, cayenne pepper, and and maple syrup. So Hmm. this would have been now, what year are we in? So almost 20 years ago, when I was living in Toronto, this became the thing to do, the master cleanse. And you would drink, you would eat nothing, and you would drink a certain amount of that every day for... I can't remember how long people would do it for. Maybe seven days, 10 days, that kind of thing. And I did try it because, again, everyone in the Second City world that I was in for whatever reason, not everyone, but a fair amount of people were doing it. And I was into kind of like 
If you hear noise, it, it, Sharky and Bean are chasing each other. They've got the zoomies. It's just, it's like a, a stampede in here. Anyway. Of course. Um, so you do this to kind of like reset your system to like whatever. And at that time, I was like open to those kinds of things. Now sure. I believe that this is, of course, a form of disordered eating that I would not support personally, for me personally. Sure. But um, – what people would tell me was that it's like, you know, you, of course you're like shitting your brains out because this is all that you're ingesting for this period of time. Sure. But that if you get to like day nine-ish, like something later, I had one friend of mine. Now, this is graphic, trigger warning for people who don't like poop talk. But there's nothing left in your system after that long because you've cleansed it all out. Like there's nothing left to move, sure. right? And he said that he passed what could be best described as what looked like a ball of rubber bands. Oh, my God. And this was after, like, days and days and days of this. And I love that at the time I was like, sounds cool. Sign me up. I lasted less than three days. I believe I lasted maybe two days. And then on day three, I broke. It was uh, not for me. Um, but it's interesting, again, that they went on this for three months because it's not enough nutrients it's not enough to 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 keep you going and i mean yes the human body will survive and and can technically quote live but i think that you you know in terms of like these other themes it it definitely feels like a way that you're making people very vulnerable that they're you know breaking down that maybe they're not functioning with the same level of faculty or mental clarity that they normally would have uh again sure. i'm only speaking to my personal experience but yes kudos to you for lasting three days i, I think it was two and a half i think it was two and a half. i wouldn't last a day yeah it wasn't I fun i think no i think i would try a sip and it would be me and peach juice but the second peach juice and i would be like no oh it's awful i also didn't care for how it tasted at all and other people really loved it and i remember there was some people that they would do it regularly they would do it like twice a year for like two weeks yeah no oh thanks. no thanks no thanks but also Different time. Forcing everybody in that cult to do it. It's bad. It means you have so many other people in that same house that you're living with and around all the time who know the pain you're going through. So that's just going to bond you even further and make you even deeper into that cult. Yep. 100%. And oh. you have to be very careful when you when you trans, you know, transition back into solid food. It's it's not so if they did this for three months, then there probably would have been an additional month of them learning to eat again, essentially. Like you can't just go back to like a burger. Like you have to like it's a very right. slow transition, especially if you've done it for that long. So yeah, to your yeah. point, that's another thing to bond people is that it's like they all went through this really hard thing, being yeah. undernourished, not getting enough calories, all of the above. And then it's a journey coming out of it too. Yeah, it's gonna bond people for sure. For sure, for sure. Um, Star Trek, X-Files, Close Encounters, and Sound of Music, not the worst television playlist for me. I kind of like this curation. It's the only oh. credit I'll give, though. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I saw, I saw the list and I was like, that starts to sound appealing. Yeah. And then my brain goes, they don't like sex. And I go, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> no, not to be glib, but like, I, oh, I couldn't have lasted a day in this, they would have been like, you need to 
dress this way and you need to cut your hair this way. And yeah, you know, and then I'd be like, no, but also they can't, you can't stop Blanche. And I think you might've been removed. Even if you wanted to say, I think they would have been like, I would have been like that woman in, in that saw them in first in like LA in the seventies. They would have left me behind. Yeah. I would have woken up. (laughs) I would have been Sid the sloth from those. Hey guys. Those Ice Age movies. And I would have woken up and been like, where, where is everybody? Oh my God. And then, oh, they did it again. Like they would absolutely get away from me because they'd be like, they would talk to me for 10 minutes and be like, oh yeah, this, this isn't worth the time it'll take to to get her there. We can't break her. We can't break Blanche. No, Um, no, you can't. I think it's interesting that. He originally said that your bodies would ascend, and then he had to switch it yeah. up to saying like, oh, your bodies are just vessels that stay on earth and your spirits yeah. will ascend. Because to me, what well, most religions believe in that, and there is, I think, yeah. truth to that. When you pass, your body is left it, and and you're no longer there. It is our soul, our spirit, however you want to label it, our energy that makes us who we are. And when we pass away, that goes. So- it's odd to me that it was ever about your body being taken up into space. If it feels, right. and so I ask, like, did they really believe that? Did they really believe that that was possible, or was it not until he was faced with the fact that he was shown, oh yeah, that's not going to happen now, that then he was like, I should pivot to more a more traditional religion type ideology? I don't know, but I do also just want to say quickly, the fact that he was going through what he said was hearing voices and these kind of like images of the end of the world, Armageddon, whatever. And then it feels like T, to be consistent, um, when they first met was really like, oh, well, maybe you're the voice of God or however you want to label it. Sure. I guess there's also the possibility that he was not necessarily rationalizing it at all. Because I go through part of this and there's half of me that feels like, oh, it was all made up. It was all a lie. They were just being manipulative. But then the flip of it is, is maybe not. Maybe this was, this was again, like someone who was having a mental health episode and met up with someone who kind of enabled it. And then they kind of lived in it together. I don't know. Sure. I don't, and I will never know, obviously, but, um, yeah, it's just wild. And the castrations is also – I remember that part of the one documentary I watched, which was hard to get through. Um, Louis Theroux, I, I wrote down. Yeah. My guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I only knew how to say it because of you. Yeah. Oh, my God. Because I've said it – I mean, there was a, a an episode of Last Call we talked about him. Yeah. And uh, even though you told me. Multiple times. Oh, I kept just calling him the wrong name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Repeatedly. Sober. Stone sober. Still kept calling him the wrong name. Um, very quickly, do you think this whole concept of the body was also going to ascend? Right. Do you think this was something that came from Star Trek where they thought it was going to be like a transporter where you go and then like it like kind of goes and then suddenly you go up. Is that why they decided in the beginning? Well, I will remind you when you die, your body just one of them did say in their exit video, 39 to beam up. 
Yeah. So I think you're right? probably on to something there. And I also love that at that point, they'd already given up the idea of yep. that concept. But I guess maybe then it just meant like the souls, the spirits, whatever. Um, right. Yeah, I think that there has to have been something in that. And it's so interesting because so much of what they seemed to be building this religion on was kind of just Christianity just yep. mixing in these additional kind of sci-fi elements. It's not like, yeah. you know, uh, the religion Scientology where it is it is it is a whole other thing. You know, like uh, sure. like all of there's so many different Judaism even is is a completely different thing. And I'm not suggesting that either of those are cults. People can d believe what they want to believe. We're going to get off track if we get into that debate. But my point just is, is that those are examples of religions that yes. are completely disconnected from traditional Christianity. And this felt very close. It felt like the only real difference was, again, the belief that Mary had been abducted and inseminated right. and this, these kinds of like physical, literal ways of getting you from Earth to heaven or however you want to label it. It was just interesting to me because, again, it didn't feel like they were reinventing the wheel. It felt like it was kind of just like an add-on. Right. You know? Oh, I... I agree. Yeah. Again, they were like, let's take our beliefs that we both grew up with. And then it's like, but I wish it was this. And then they're like, well, why can't it be? Right. So then they added elements of things they liked. And then they were like, yep, this is this is it. And then they got so deep in it. Yeah. I mean, the people who at the beginning of it were like, oh, these people are just charlatans. And I'm like, uh-huh. Um but it's not like they were getting tons of money out of it. Like, if that's why they were charlatans. Like, it's just, to me, if you're going to create this whole thing and get all these people, it's because you're going to be like, you you don't give away your possessions. You give them all to the cult. Right. Well, and that all- Give everything you own to us. And yes, they did get money from various members and stuff of, over the time, but- But that opens up an interesting conversation about what is the intentions of a cult leader. Because I would argue that for a lot of cult leaders, it has very little to do with money and it has everything to do with power. Sure. It has everything oh, to do yeah. with, you know, um, wanting to feel like you're godlike, wanting to have people- worship you like all the like david koresh comes to mind like i don't think that he oh, was yeah. in it for the money i think that he did it because whether he really believed it or not he certainly liked what that life was you know what i mean so sure it's an interesting kind of debate and and you're right i think the use of the term charlatan is is interesting because that does imply that there would be some sort of like financial gain and that's not yes i don't think that's the case for many cult leaders Personally, true. I think for a lot of them, it's more just about power and prestige and feeling like they're the head of something, the most important. Oh yeah, again, I can see that. Um, this story about Yvonne and Stephen, I I see why you included it because it's absolutely heartbreaking. Um, so many computer people, and then that makes me feel so like. Many. Did they bring those skills in? Did they learn them when they were there? I mean, we know that this was going on for 20 years for a lot of people. Was that kind of like encouraged in them? I don't know. We, we, I'm sure we could 
dig and find out, but also it doesn't matter. The point is, is that it is just fascinating that so many were so involved in computers. I also oh, wrote down um, the suicides were committed in stages as outlined in a binder called The Routine. This is the only binder Christy doesn't want any part of. Thank you very much. A hundred percent. I absolutely, the second I saw it, I was like, do I purposely avoid putting the binder comment in there to avoid comments from people that are like, well, Christy's got to respect that. You know, like I was, you know, um, yeah, look, I mean, they even lost me with here's the seating chart for TV. Yeah. Not even a, if other people aren't there, you could sit in a different spot. No, you sit in the one spot regardless. And that apparently burns me so bad that I'm like, nope. No, I like no. it. You're like, I don't want to be told where to sit. And I don't want to be told what to do. It's true. Christy years ago, maybe. Christy now, get out of town. Well. Nice try. I'd love to see that for you. Nice try. Nobody's trying. Again, she can't be broken. <laughs> Too late. She already is. Um, <laughs> listen, give it another 40 years. Um <laughs> My last thought, my last That'll be that episode. Yeah. My last thought is it's very interesting, I think, this kind of revelation that T had been breaking the rules the whole time, was always in contact with her daughter Terry, even if Doe was listening in. This letter to Terry saying she didn't feel she could get out, that there was no good way out, etc. I have many thoughts about this. I think it's a fascinating yeah. kind of layer to it all because look I think that it's easy well maybe it's not easy for everybody but I think that it, the concept may be easy for people to understand that it's like you meet somebody you have this great connection um, you kind of develop this thing together regardless of whether or not it was based in altruism that they really believed it or they didn't which again I think that's really my I'm leaning towards more and more that much like there was the one person that you mentioned who was like, in the beginning, I thought it was fake. But then by the end, I was like, oh, I think they really believe this. Like, um, right. You know, along the, that, that's kind of how I'm tending to lean too. But I think it's very interesting that it's more than possible that T started out that way, that they both started out that way. And then over time, maybe didn't believe that anymore, maybe did start to feel like, what am I doing? Is this right? Whatever. But then I think it's very human to say the kind of concepts of, but I don't know how to get out of this. I'm too deep in. I don't think I can do this. Like that is such a common experience for people in abusive relationships and situations um, that that feels very sad to me because, and I think she, it's more than possible also felt some level of responsibility because she was one of the founders. They had started it together, all of these kinds of things. You know, I just thought that that was like an interesting additional element because again, she was a nurse when Doe was brought in on under what feels like, I think it's safe to at least say was a mental health related episode. Yeah. I think there was a lot of other things going on there, but it feels very much like there was an acute episode happening and the fact that she was the nurse, you know, he was the patient, it just feels, again, so interesting in terms of dynamic, what they brought each other. 
what they created together. But do I believe that by the end of her life, she may have been like, I don't think I need to do this anymore, but I really don't know how I can get out of it. And I don't think I can. I buy that. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I'm also curious. In the moment when she died and he was left going, oh, shit, her body didn't ascend. This is contradicting things. What am I going to do? I'm surprised in that moment that he didn't go, well, here's the thing. Turns out she wasn't a true believer. Right. I found out she's been contacting her family. She didn't give up everything. This is what happens to you when you don't follow the teachings accurately. Yeah. Like, I'm surprised he didn't try to make an example of her in that way. But also, I think it was just he loved her, like, platonically, of course, but he loved her so much that I think without her, he was so thrown, he just didn't know what to do. Yeah. But if he had told them, like, she's an example You'll all die like this and be left here on Earth. Well, there's part of me also, this is a massive speculation, but there's part of me that also wonders, had she not passed, I wonder if they would have even done the group suicide. It's possible that it could have just gone on and on and on, as there are many religions that are like, we're waiting for the second coming, we're waiting for, and it goes on for hundreds of years, you know, like that's not an atypical yeah kind of thing that exists in religions. I honestly wonder if it was like in part his own depression, his own, you know, all of missing her, all of the above, that that kind of changed the game. Like I wonder, because it sounds like it was not from the beginning. Well, sounds like you said it. From the beginning, it was like they were anti-suicide. They were, that was like a part of it. So it feels to me like, Again, this is another layer of the tragedy of this whole story is that it started and and a, a lot of the the sex stuff, in my opinion, was just because he was trying to deal with his own internalized homophobia. Um, but likewise, it feels like this ending was him trying to deal with his own depression and sadness and and all of the above. and And unfortunately, he dragged in, you know, Dozens of other people at the same time. It, it just feels, yeah. again, like I just don't know that they ever would have gotten to that point had she lived. I feel like they could have continued on being this fringe kind of cult group, you know, specific religion, however you want to label it, and that they were preparing for this forever, but that it ultimately may have never come. Um, oh, I totally agree. Yeah. It's very sad. Because it was... They were absolutely against it. And then the second she died, it was like, well, guess what? And I think, too, it's now the only way we can actually achieve what we want. Yeah. And I think, too, I think it's really great and important that you, you know, reminded that it was like, these are real people. These are people who got connected to something that was was filling a void in their life for whatever reason. And it's very tragic and very sad in my opinion, on all levels, that um, it it got to the point that it did for all of these people. Because again, it feels like they were being led by someone who was also changing the name of the game based on what he was going through internally. Um, 
which, yeah, it's just a very, it's a very sad story. And I think people look at it as when you look at the big details, the UFO element, the castration, the, all of the, 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 Mm -hmm. you know, the death scene, all of that. I, I do think that at that time, certainly, especially I remember that time, um, it was made such a joke. And I think one thing that makes me very hopeful about society, which is often very hard to be, I think, uh, in the terms of the world, but what makes me hopeful is that I hope that people now can look at this story and see it for what it is, which is that it was a tragedy. It was very sad. It's not funny. These aren't crackpot people, whatever. I don't think anybody's under that label personally. I think that people are, are on journeys and with varying degrees of success and struggle and all of the above. Um, but I think it's so diminishing to kind of look at it as like, oh, well, like, look at whatever. It's like, no, it's a really sad story on every level for every one of these people, including Doe. It's a sad story for him, too, that he didn't feel that he yes. could li- live his authentic, you know, being. Um, So important to tell, important to tell. And I think that you did an amazing job as always. You are too kind. I will say it uh, publicly. I don't like the cult episodes. <laughs> They're heavy. They're heavy. They're a lot. Yeah. They're a lot. Yeah. 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 I'm pleased that it's over. I know. The time that I spent looking at all of their faces to try and put a name with each face to be able to put uh, in the case file was tough. And there's a lot that are really still in there. Yeah. And they're going to be in my brain for a while. And I I was excited to record this to be done this. <laughs> Welcome to me after Gacy. Uh, yep. <laughs> Sometimes it's just a lot. Uh, I think yep. that's when the body count is high. It feels very overwhelming when you're dealing with a yeah. lot of victims. It's hard. I know. Yeah. Well, I appreciate. Yeah. I mean, there was also the castration and. Sure. It was also really hard to go in as a person who's so skeptical about any alien UFO slash whatever, where it was hard for me to go in as a, some people genuinely believe this. I'm so hard skeptical. I'm immediately like, uh-huh. But I'm like, nope, look at it from another angle. So a lot of time, a lot of time was spent with it. I get it. I Which really is why do. it's one of our longer episodes in a while. And hey, what a gift to everybody. Um, yeah. Well, listen, I appreciate your work. It was fantastic. And we deeply appreciate all you do for this show. I deeply appreciate that I have a quote from you. Trigger warning for people who don't like poop talk. <laughs> I can't wait to read that quote to you at the end of the year and us go, don't know what that was about. Me too. Me too. I cannot wait for it. Oh, what a gift in our lives. Uh, and we thank you, dear listeners, for joining us on this very roller coaster level <laughs> journey. Um, uh, what a great job Christy does as always. And uh, we thank you so much for being here with us along for the ride. If you haven't already, give us a follow on the socials on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails on Twitter at Not Detectives. If you'd like some bonus content, go over to patreon.com slash true crime and cocktails. You can vote on future episodes that we'll cover in this feed. This was one of those uh, chosen from our Patreon voters. 
Um, there's also bonus episodes, live monthly Q&As, all kinds of great stuff. And of course, the only place to get official True Crew, True Crime and Cocktails merch is TrueCrewMerch.com. So check that out as well if you're interested. Uh, Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode? I do. There's not one. <laughs> <laughs> no. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. No, for real. There is not an episode next week. We are, anytime there but. is five Tuesdays in a month, we do take one off to try and get ahead. It's not a week off for us. It's just a week for us to try and get ahead to continue <laughs> to make the show. <laughs> Correct. Without burning work completely. It's going to be a lot of time uh, between now and 2061. Yep. Um, so there is not an episode next week. But on May 16th episode of True Crime and Cocktails, Dateline, Dead Man Talking. I'm going to tell you something, dear listeners. I was watching that episode of Dateline at the exact same moment that Christy texted me and was like, have you heard about this case? And when I tell you, it was easily the wildest episode of Dateline I've ever seen. I am not, it is not an exaggeration. I'm so excited that we're going to be talking about this case. It is cuckoo bananas. So stay tuned for that because it is going to be a wild one. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Brian Boucher. E.T. phone home. (laughs) Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.